You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence service, foreign service, DOD employees and contractors, and their immediate family members to create compelling, professional live theater and events. So most weeks that I have a writer as a guest, um, my schedule gets very compressed uh, because I try to read whatever they've written and get smart on them enough to hold an intelligent conversation. I'll usually know. I mean, I don't totally fish blind. I mean, usually I'll know them already because I've read some of their stuff, but I try to read as much as I can. Obviously, as many of you know, uh, sometimes that doesn't totally work out like with Elliot Ackerman, where I wasn't able to fully read all of his books in time, but generally that's the game plan. Um, so then Jason Casper agreed to come on the show and I was so intrigued by his story and by the little bit of his writing that I'd read, uh, former ranger, who then went to West Point, uh, became an officer, became a Green Beret, uh, an adrenaline junkie, base jumper, what have you, um, who then became, has become, and is continuing to be, a very successful commercial fiction writer. And <clears throat> that was intriguing to me for many reasons, not the least of which, that we haven't had too many commercial fiction writers on the show and uh, probably a little bit a bit a little bit of that is intentional on my part because I don't read that much commercial fiction and to get smart and intelligent on a writer enough for me to feel comfortable interviewing him I, I commercial fiction writers churn out so much material that I'm like Jesus when the hell am I going to read all this stuff and, and kind of get enough of an idea of their work um, that's not the whole reason, but that's, that's a decent chunk of the reason I think. Anyway, uh, I was willing to take that gambit for Jason Casper because I thought there were a lot of threads that we could talk about, you know, and I was relatively confident I could shoehorn time in my schedule. Then a very happy accident happened where, uh, <laughs> making a simple flight to St. Louis and back somehow ended up with me in Houston driving 25 hours back to New York. Uh, I won't bore you guys with the details. They're not that fascinating, but they're incredibly annoying. Uh, but it basically burned, I mean, it fucked up my entire week. But besides that, in burning my schedule, what it also did is it gave me 25 hours in a car, uh, which is great time to turn on Audible and listen to some commercial fiction. So uh, that was a very happy accident that that timed out very well for me to be able to come slide right back into New York just in time to interview Jason. I mean, literally, like, you know, grab a quick combat nap and then boom, go podcast with him. Uh, but I was very much in uh, in the worlds that he's created. And that's really, I think, the magic of great commercial fiction is um, – 
yes, they're characters. Yes, they need to be believable. Yes, there's dialogue. Yes, it should be believable. But to me, commercial fiction is a study in architecture. It is all about the construct of the stories and building a compelling need for a reader to have to turn the page to find out what happens next. And so it makes it, it lends itself to those genres like, you know, thrillers um, and, uh, and all that populate most of commercial fiction uh, because of that, because there, it needs to build that compelling, compelling reason for you to turn the page. And for Jason to do that, I was interested in how he went about doing it. I'm interested in how a commercial fiction writer revs up that engine. I mean, we've talked to countless poets on the show, um, other kinds of writers on the show, and it's a different battle rhythm with most kinds of writing. Commercial fiction is a fucking treadmill. It's a it's a real machine, and uh, not just on the writing side, but also on the business side, which Jason and I talk about in this episode. So it's a very impressive accomplishment for Jason seven years into his yeah seven eight years into his writing career to have built this ecosystem that is thriving, and he's built multiple. I mean, he has uh, you know like any good commercial fiction author, he has various series. He has his Shadow Strike series, which stems from his American Mercenary series, where his protagonist David Rivers that is loosely based on him, uh, you know, continues as a through line through both of those series. But then he has his Spider Heist series, which has a female protagonist and is all about Highline burglary uh, and heists, as the name would suggest. And then Her Dark Silence is a standalone book that he wrote that's a thriller, again, with a female protagonist. So an interesting um, array of subjects, protagonists, yet all written at this incredibly robust pace. Um, I think a lot of writers are going to learn a lot from Jason's battle rhythm and how he approaches things. Um, cause I say, that's not an easy, um, path to go. Um, and, and the fact that he's churning out so much material in a commercially successful way <clears throat> is really a testament. It's really something, um, as you'll hear us talk about. So without any further ado, this is a, uh, by the way, great fucking episode. Uh, Jason was just couldn't have been a better dude. And, um, and honestly, you know, I say this so often, Hey, I wish I had six hours with this people, this, this guy, um, with Jason, it, it damn near was <laughs> and, uh, deservedly. So, such an interesting dude and articulate about his experience, which is becoming more and more of a prerequisite to have on this show because so many guests are, are, are one-upping each other on their articulation of their experiences, which really makes for a, a fucking conversation I just can't end easily um, or want to end easily. So anyway, great time. Get ready to meet a very interesting dude if you're not already tracking him. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director of Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is the savage wonder of Jason Casper.
the show, Jason. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Um, congratulations, I guess, is the first thing I want to say. I mean, holy shit, you must, or do you write a book every three months? I mean, honestly, the pace is in- incredible and the quality is so impressive. I, 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 I'm like, you must be writing like eight hours a day or have tons of inspiration or what, but I mean, congratulations on just maintaining that battle rhythm with writing. No, thank you. Yeah, I did. Um, started out, it'd take me like eight months to write a book and then I got it down to three to four months. Um, and then currently I'm doing about every five to six, uh, for new releases. What does that look like? What is your daily rhythm? Uh, I get up around four in the morning and I try to do a 90 minute block, uh, before anybody in my house is awake. Um, and that's usually the foundation for keeping the day on track in terms of production. Like when I miss that morning block through travel or whatever, it's a lot harder for me to get into the book later in the day. Um, and then I usually do another 90 minute block sometime around nine, 10 o'clock in the morning and then a third one in the afternoon. So it ends up being about four hours a day. How long did it take for you to figure out that's how you needed to work? Uh, there's a lot of trial and error, and I, I actually learned how to work when I was in the military. I was a closet writer for a while, um, even before I had any intentions of ever becoming a novelist. Uh, but it was, you know, get up early, get a little work and stay connected with the manuscript, and then, um, you know, do what you do what you can after work or weekends to kind of keep the ball rolling. Um, and then on deployment, you know, just having like stacks of ammo cans to prop a keyboard up on a plywood desk uh, in my room uh, kind of gave me the write anywhere mentality and however you need to work it to fit fit time into your schedule to make it happen. Okay. So <clears throat> that's way too interesting an answer. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to dive into that a little bit more. Um, and of course, I'm so interested that I just jumped over the whole chronology of how we really need to approach this. When did you first start writing? Uh, it would have been around 2007. I was, um, I spent a couple years in a uh, range battalion, did a couple deployments and then went to West point in 2004. Um, did not do well there. Didn't enjoy it. And, um, had kind of a lot of fallout. Like I missed the war. I missed the adrenaline, missed the chaos. Um, so I got into like, I became an adrenaline junkie, started skydiving, and then that kind of lost its rush. So I got into base jumping, like jumping up buildings, antennas, um, and documenting the base jump. So I'd go out on the weekends and like illegally base jump. And then um, sometimes on the weekdays, and then I would come back and basically keep like a log book of sorts on my computer, just in like a word file hidden on my computer. And uh, I would document the jumps. And then kind of in the process of doing that. And I was also severely depressed, pretty actively suicidal and um, like not in a great spot. So kind of that was my first exposure. The descriptions would get longer and longer uh, as I was detailing these jumps, what was going through my head, like the meaninglessness of life. Um, and I got like pretty poetic with it and they started getting longer and longer. And I found it like cathartic. Like, it was the first thing that actually like helped me in any way other than alcohol, which deserves its fair due. Um, <laughs> so then I, I was like, well, I can't, I can't jump all the time. Right. Cause the winds are too high or you can't always get a way to do it. Um, and I was like, what if I tried my hand at fiction? So I just sat down one day, came up with a protagonist named David rivers. And then, um, kind of wrote this scene of him going against an armed man in a house and 
having a confrontation and killing him. It's kind of a cold-blooded murder scene. That's now like the first chapter of my first book. But it was like when I finished that, I was jacked on adrenaline, like looking at the door, waiting for cops to burst in. Like I was so immersed in the experience that like I felt like I was there. It was like being in a real world situation for me. And that's when I was kind of like, holy shit, like this is amazing. Um, and I can get get my adrenaline fixed through writing. And that's what kind of kicked it off for me. So you were not a writer as a kid. You were not somebody that was sitting there keeping a journal as a kid, being inspired by some teacher. That was not your path to writing. No, I, I did a little bit of writing stories when I was a kid. And I think a lot of kids do. And I was in a very artistic household. Like my mom was an artist. Um, so creativity was very encouraged. But uh, I like in terms of natural talent, I was naturally talented, um, not at writing, but at like visual art. Like I have pencil sketches from when I was 13 where I can look at them now. I'm like, my God, like I'm struggling to draw like cartoon characters for my huh. daughter at this point. Uh, so this is definitely a perishable skill. But like my mom told me very early on, she's like, you have the eye for this. Like if you wanted to pursue art professionally, you could. But I didn't have any interest in doing visual art. Um or pursuing fiction writing for that matter. It wasn't until, you know, I found myself in a dark space in my, in my twenties, um, after a few combat trips that I found it like extremely cathartic and it was a beautiful experience for me. And then I kicked around manuscripts, um, none of which were, were very good. And then when I was getting out of the military in 2016, I really honed in, I threw out like three books, honed in on my first book, rewrote it pretty much from scratch. Um, the first scene is largely intact somehow. There was just a bit of like beginner's luck, I think there. Uh, but then I rewrote the book from scratch and then took the series in a totally different direction than I'd envisioned. Okay. We're going to get to all that then. Uh, let me, let me set the table, uh, I guess from the very beginning, uh, I, I you know, I, I start these things off with shockingly little discipline. <laughs> <laughs> where I'm like, I'm just because I mean, here's here's the thing. So I'll, I'll give you a little backstory as to where my head's at. <clears throat> I, I've had the most fucked up week with travel, and I was supposed to be back here in New York three days ago. And United Airlines negative shout out uh, really screwed me, and so I drew back drove back from Houston uh, to New York over the last three days, which was a very happy accident because I got to listen to so much of your writing on Audible while I was driving back. So thank you. 25 hour drive to like catch me up on a lot, but it made me it may come into this interview um, all hot on different threads, different themes and, and had a whole lot of questions about so much of your work. So I start off with all these immediate questions. And then I was like, God damn, that's two interesting answers. And I want to go down those rabbit holes, but I feel like we do need to set the table a little bit more to start with where were you born where did you come from uh wisconsin um town of like 300 people in dairy farming country that's that okay. stevens point and you said you grew up in an artistic house were you not inspired to follow the arts in any real way because there were other things you were better at or was there some reason why despite your mom's encouragement you're just like yeah not feeling the visual arts so much I just didn't have that much of an interest in visual arts. I think from the beginning, like I like tinkering around with it. Um, I saw I was naturally good at it, which I don't think applied to writing as much, regrettably for me. Um, but I was, I was hardcore military 
from a you know pretty early age. By the time I was in high school, I was like, I'm either going special operations or I'm going to be a fighter pilot. Like, and I was kind of 50 50. I started taking pilots lessons, like flew a plane by myself before I drove a car by myself. Um, didn't end well, but I survived. And then I kind of like just found the balance tipping where flying kind of lost its magic for me. And I went kind of whole hog on special operations. And that was my, that was my focus, you know, after that point. Where, where did your interest in the military come from? Did you know a lot of veterans? Was it in your family? No, no. Uh, it's an excellent question. I think uh, I could credit GI Joe when I was growing up. Okay. Um, and then I was just fascinated with it. Like I would, that's what all I did in high school is I read a bunch of, you know, the old Vietnam paperbacks, like all nonfiction yeah. history, like Max Sog, Sante Raiders. Uh, I was fascinated, like Battle of Mogadishu uh, really turned me towards like enlisting for the Rangers. Uh, but yeah, I was basically reading everything I get my hands on for special operations uh, to make a decision on like which branch of service I wanted to go into. But yeah, it kind of came out of nowhere, to be honest with you. Um, I think my brother made me watch Predator when I was like six years old. That's where I learned what a Green Beret was. That might have <laughs> embedded gotcha. itself in my subconscious. But yeah, there was no real catalyst in terms of family, military service or anything else. Were you an athlete? Not a good one. Uh, I'm wildly unathletic. Like when it comes to team sports, catching balls, I'm atrocious, just atrocious have been my whole life but I was always pretty physical in terms of like I was good at like running upper body strength I was always pretty solid um and in high school I pursued like cross country that was my big thing um but again I wasn't good at it you know I at best at my peak I um was like the last varsity slot like looking over my shoulder at the first JV runner coming in five seconds behind me you know <laughs> locked in this race to the death but uh, yeah, never, never physically gifted in any meaningful way. Did you plan then immediately after high school to enlist? Was that always the plan? Yes. I enlisted actually like right after my 17th birthday and did delayed entry program with a okay. Ranger contract. And then the only college I applied to was West Point. And uh, they clearly, they didn't take me. Uh, I was also not a gifted student or even much of a student at all. I, I didn't care. Uh, didn't apply myself, wouldn't have done great if I did. So I was like bottom 50% of my high school class, not exactly uh, West Point material. So when what year was this that you uh, that you left high school and joined the Army, went to boot camp? Uh, June 2001, I went to boot camp. Wow, okay. So yeah, so you were all in. You didn't even need a war to inspire you to join. Okay. No. Got you. Uh, so then... Were you at basic or were you at AIT when 9-11 happened? I was at the end of AIT, end of infantry training um, when it happened. Boy, that was serendipitous. My timing, you know, not much in the way of athletic ability or academics, but man, my timing is pretty yeah. spot on. Yeah. How did you feel when you when you heard the news? Uh, you know, horrified news of the attacks. It was actually weeks before I could actually see video of it because we were locked in for training and, you know, then went straight to airborne school. And, um, you know, this is before iPhones were a thing. Right. So we were like trying to get our hands on newspapers and stuff. Sure. Um, but yeah, horrified at the attacks and thrilled that we would go to war. I was actually terrified of missing it. Like yeah. I sat down, our group of friends that were all had Ranger contracts. Um, I sat down with them that morning because obviously training got thrown off and they were like, uh, just wait, wait here. And like all the drill sergeants and cadre disappeared. 
to go watch the news. Um, and then we sat down and I was like, I was quite the amateur student of special operations history. And I was like, listen, guys, we have to quit our ranger contracts immediately and just get to a unit to go to war. And I detailed like, look, man, we got, you know, um, I said, America's not doing another Vietnam. That's out of the question. So those are words that left my mouth, Chris. Um, that's 18 year old Jason Casper, uh, put it down on the record. And I was like, you got, you know, Grenada was like a week, 83, Panama, two weeks, yeah. 89, Battle of Mogadishu, which is like a company of Rangers and special mission unit. Like that was a few days, few months, you know, with the raids leading up to it. Um, you know, Gulf War, like not long. We have to get to a unit because our country is so smart. They're not going to get bogged down in anything. And if we wait to go through airborne school and go through, you know, Ranger selection and get to a unit, um, it, the war is going to be over. And fortunately, we had a, uh, a UVA grad who specialized, like he studied Afghanistan heavily. He was the only one when we went to basic training and we were all like, it's going to be China. We're going to fight China. He was like, it's going to be terrorists, either the government of or terrorist sponsored by the government of Afghanistan. You say in that June 2001. And uh, he was like, uh, so I was a student of special operations history, but not much of a student of history, obviously, <laughs> but he was, and he said, uh, he was like, listen, man, like countries do not get in out of Afghanistan quickly. You're looking at 10 years minimum, like absolute minimum is going to be 10 years. And, uh, I took his advice and it's a good thing I did. Those are amazing conversations to remember. And, and just what a snapshot of different perspectives just prior to and, and around 9-11. That's amazing. Um, what did he end up doing? Uh, you know? He ended up going to, yeah, he went to uh, 82nd Airborne. Um, was a mortarman, served in mortar. I was supposed to be a mortar guy, and then I lied about my MOS in Airborne School to get out of it, which shockingly worked. It literally penciled in 11 Bravo instead of 11 Charlie on the paperwork. And a buddy of mine who's a mortar guy like looked over at me, and he was like, that's like, they're going to catch you, man. Like fucking yourself. And I was like, I'm going for it, man. Like, I, I don't want to be like, I don't want to be like hucking mortar rounds a few clicks from the gunfight. That's how I saw it at the time. You know, everybody uh, ended up doing gotcha. largely the same thing, obviously, but I didn't know that. And I was like, I want to be in the gunfights, man. And I graduated airborne school certificate said 11 Bravo, one Papa, like parachute infantryman, not mortar. And then when I got to rip ranger indoctrination yeah. program every time they called a formation and split up the mos's i was like terrified like soul crushing horror like this this is where they find me and they never did i got my orders for ranger regiment for 11 bravo slot and i ended up telling my team leader like a few weeks before i left for west point or my squad leader a few weeks before i left for west point okay so uh that's hilarious so when uh did they pick you up from airborne for rip did they come oh, yeah. get you guys at the end? Yeah. Okay. Most sobering moment of my life. I I bet. How did it feel? I'm, I'm going, I'm going, I always like to ask those kind of questions, but I, I feel like rather than basic or AIT, I feel like, uh, that would be the moment because now, you know, nine 11 has happened. You know, you're going to war when they came to get you. Were you, were you fired up? Was nine 11 still like peaking your, your inspiration and your motivation? Um, did it feel like, oh my God, these years of reading all these books, I'm actually that guy. Now I'm actually going to go through this. This is actually the moment. Like what were the emotions for you in, in when they were coming to get you, when they got you? It was the most badly I've ever wanted to quit anything in my life. 
Okay. When the obviously I didn't quit, but when the these giant like rangers showed up, you know, they're all they all look 10 feet tall, the 18-year-old private in their tan berets, um, and started like going through the formation. I was like, man, this is going to suck. I wasn't wrong. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I did I did have a very high level of motivation to get in there. The um my future ranger company, Charlie Company 375, uh, did a combat jump in Afghanistan like while I was in airborne school before I jumped out of a plane and I actually ended up meeting those guys right when they came back. So you can imagine they're, they're super welcoming. They just came back with their CIB and a mustard stain. So they're super welcoming to the, the cherry new guys coming in. So we, we went through the grinder for sure. Um, in those moments when you were being pushed, um, what did you, was this the first time because you talked about your athletic career and all that. So physically, was this the first time you'd kind of been pushed to this degree or did it, did did something resonate? Did something feel familiar to you about going through rep? So what felt familiar is I was in my high school cross country career. I was never interested in like speed. I was like fascinated with like, what's the maximum distance I can do. Like I remember the first day I did 10 miles. Remember the first day I did 13, I did a half marathon in high school. So I was very interested in physical endurance but I'd also at that point, like by the time I graduated high school, I was like, my life to date has nothing for me. Like I would get boredom headaches yep. after yep. high school. I was just like, it it didn't fit me. I knew it was wrong. I knew I needed to be doing something. And everything I later found that was that was a fit um was not available to a, you know, a 17-year-old kid. Um so I had like made a pact for myself. I was like, I am going to either get in this unit or, or die trying. And I called it like in my head, I was like, it's beret or a body bag. Like yeah. they tell me to pull out a gun, shoot the guy next to me in formation. Boom, done. They tell me to jump off a cliff to my death, done. Like I will not ask any questions and do whatever they ask me to. Um, so I, I did go through it with kind of a almost excessive diehard focus of, I don't care if this kills me. I do want to ask about your parents. What did they think about you joining the army? And then what did they think post nine 11 about your path? Was there a difference in how they thought of your army career? I don't think so. They viewed the military as very prestigious. Their exposure to it um, was related to West point because my brother went to West point. So whereas I was like hardcore, I'm going military, military, he kind of, uh, my older brother, he was an academic superstar and could have gone anywhere he wanted and kind of did, nobody expected him to go into the military. And then he kind of did a hard right, went to West Point. So my parents view was, it's the, it's the parade grounds and these, these beautiful manicured settings and the honor and the prestige, kind of that whole, uh, they, they bought the propaganda for sure, but they saw it as a very prestigious thing. I think their only issue was me going to, uh, enlist rather than becoming an officer. Um, and I did it with the intention of going to West point. I was like, I'll do time at Ranger battalion and I'll, I'll try to get back in. But, uh, that was the only hesitation they had. And then after nine 11, they were as supportive and patriotic as I mm-hmm. think most of America was at the time. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, what about your brother? Um, when you were, I mean, I'm just thinking of those moments at rip or even in basic, was there a thought of, Hey, I'm in the real army right now. Like this is, this is proper armying. Like this isn't uh, West point. I'm not at college. 
Yeah. Was there anything like that? Or was, or was there a sense of, was there a non-competitive sense of just, oh yeah, you're on your path. I'm on my path. We just, you know, same, same, just different choices and all that. Like what, what was the dynamic? Uh, it was, I think we had mutual respect for each other's chosen path. Um, he was class of 2001. So we at West Point class of 2001. So he was at Fort Benning for infantry officer basic mm. when I was at airborne school in RIP. So I could see him on the weekends and we would talk and everything. And like when I would meet his other lieutenant buddies, um, these are fresh lieutenants just out of West yeah. Point. They were doing infantry training and having gone to ranger school or a unit. Um, they were almost in awe of like, geez, so you're showing up to rip next week. Like we've heard that they tear people up. Um, so I think it was mutual respect went both ways. There wasn't any sense of competition. I don't think for either of us. Well, that's cool. And that also makes sense. I I guess you guys are both heading down somewhat similar paths, at least initially. So yeah, that makes, um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, making it through rip. How'd you feel? At the end of it, did you feel like, did you feel different than you did before? Did you feel revealed? Did you feel um, like this was everything that you had hoped it would be? I did. Yeah, that was, it was a very big moment. And they, they're not like, in contrast to West Point, when I learned later, where they're like, hey, you're all special snowflakes. You're our best and brightest. You know, they crush your soul. They get everybody to quit that will quit to quit pretty early on and then they keep hammering harder until more people quit and then they drop people for standards throughout so by the time you finish um and they like when they handed me the scroll like the ranger scroll they were the guy said it to everybody he handed it to walking down the line before graduation he was like it's harder to keep than it was to earn mm-hmm. and that was kind of our send-off it turned out to also be very true um how long was it before? Well, what happened next? Did you end up deploying next? Did you end up going to Ranger School next? What was the next major wicket that you went through at Ranger Bat? Uh, so I went to Ranger Bat late 2001, and then we deployed in June 2002. Okay. So you were not tabbed yet? No. When you deployed? Okay. No, I didn't go to Ranger School until I was an officer. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I left for West Point, but my, Biggest decision point for Ranger School would have it was that or invasion of Iraq. And I chose okay. fucking wisely, Chris. I chose so wisely. And it was uh, in my mind at the time. It's like, man, I, you know, getting the school out of the way and stuff. And then it was like, we're going to Iraq. And I was like, eh, fuck it. Like, let's do this. And yeah. it ended up being a very good call. And when I went to Ranger School as an officer, I was like, this is what everybody was talking about. You know, it's a big army school, it's not Ranger Regiment. Um, we didn't have like the naming conventions in the army and our pretty generic special forces and ranger school is a big trade oc, big army training command school. And then ranger regiment is like the pipe hitters, but it's the same name. And right. yeah, we fostered a lot of confusion through that, I think. Well, but yeah, sure. I, I didn't think, yeah. I didn't think ranger school was a big deal at all. Whereas like what, what I had to do as a private and ranger regiment was harder than anything they ever asked me to do at West Point by a factor of 10. Um, I, I believe that what was it specifically at Ranger bat? Was it being the FNG? Was it just getting hazed? Was it, um, was it just the, the standard, you know, pattern of life and battle rhythm of just being in Ranger bat? What was it that was the most challenging for you? Uh, you could say all of the above Okay. with a straight face. Um, 
they're, you know, unique in among most special operations unit in that they have to take privates, like most special operations units, you have to be pretty seasoned and certain rank to go to selection or, you know, in the case like the 18 x-ray program, which they were just firing back up at that time. Um, you know, you go through so much additional training and then years in the Q course. Uh, but for Ranger regiment, they're uniquely positioned. Uh, I guess the seals are the same way where you get somebody fresh out of basic and you have to take them to charging the proverbial or literal machine gun bunker mentality, um, in a very short period of time. So it was, um, extremely unforgiving and for good reason. Um, and then we also had, um, in, in my platoon in particular, we had, and this is not characteristic of my army experience, but we had some like very toxic NCO leadership, um, that were very, uh, big into physical hazing and crushing souls above and beyond any reasonable level. Um, so it was, it was kind of a meat grinder in every sense of the word, I would say. I, I was in range battalion. It wasn't until I deployed with them that I first went to work for like a PT formation without a gut churning sense of nausea and holy shit. Like that was my first six months in Ranger regiment. This is going to sound very Oprah ish, but I can't think of a better way to phrase it. Hit me. What was, what did you learn about yourself in that kind of pressure? Were you a joker? Were you somebody that could be a gray man and just slip through unnoticed? Were you defined? Like, I mean, um, yeah. What did, what were you finding out about yourself through all that? Regrettably, not a gray man. Um, I was very much like, I was more on the Joker side, more irreverent of authority. Uh, and I paid dearly for that time and time again. Um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of my angle. Like humor was my, the way I got through, like that was my catnip throughout. What was the deployment like? Where'd you go? Uh, you went to Afghanistan, right? Uh, mm -hmm. June, 2002. Okay. Where in Afghanistan? We were based mostly at a bag room and then we spent time like launching missions at a bag room and that, which was pretty much all there was. And then later we went to uh, Asadabad, which at the time was some agency types, some private military contractor types and Rangers. And that was, and some special forces as well. And that was it. And I mean, it was outpost. We were digging showers. People were finding like human right. femurs and stuff from the Soviets. Right. Right. Uh, I heard later it was like a super built up post, like a Burger King and shit. But yeah, at yeah. the time it was yeah. middle of nowhere. And then we um, ran operations out of there as well. What was the juxtaposition between that and having come from Garrison and coming from Ranger Bat? And I'm thinking specifically about all the military knowledge that you had built up, were you a little disillusioned, um, disappointed, turned off at all throughout your time in garrison? And was there a change when you got overseas to go, oh, this is, all right, this is actually a bit more what I wanted. Was there any of that sense? I think there was a bit in it, a bit of that disparity and it kind of colored my army career thereafter because garrison, you're going through all the bullshit and the guys who have to serve in a peacetime army have my utmost respect. Cause it's, you go through so much. Um, and like combat makes it all worthwhile. Like that cleanses all the sins of everything you had to do in garrison, all the bullshit you put up with. Um, 
And yeah, by the time I got out, I had no interest in serving in a peacetime army in any way, shape or form. So for what that's worth. Um, were you still, did, did, at any point, did you regret your life choice, especially before you deployed? Where Was there any sense of, God damn, these guys are fucking dicks. <laughs> you know, was there any of that? Or was it still like, no, I'm still, I'm, I'm down for this. I'm, uh, it, some of this sucks, but you know, overall, I still like this. I was fully committed. And I knew by wow. then that my life prior to joining the army was meaningless. Like I found nothing other than, you know, we do some hiking trips in the Smokies where you, you know, you're like, there's something to this. Like you're trying to figure out what life is as a young man. And um, there was something to that. But the army, by the time I hit it, I was fully invested. Um, and I knew that there was like nothing I'd left behind that there was to mm -hmm. go back to. Nor was there any job on the outside that I was remotely interested in. How long was the first deployment? Was it six months? I think it was closer to four. Okay. Uh, was there, a, and I'm saying this especially as someone who was reading a lot of military history and knew a lot of special operations history, was there kind of like that spine tingling sense that you're now part of that? You're part of that lineage. You're writing some of that history now? Yeah, first anniversary of 9-11, it was my company of rangers marching up one side of the Chagall Valley in Kunar province and another company of rangers marching up the other side of the valley with American flags, you know, on the one year anniversary. Uh that that sent it home pretty clearly. Yeah, I was I mean, I was thrilled to be there. Um what about interacting with everybody else? What about the fact that especially at that point in the war where it's all tier one units you guys you know soft heavy environment um was that i think of the best way to say this was there a sense when you when you're on that flight back back home was there a sense that like you had you had now really just done something like you had actually been part of a true tip of the spear mogadishu plus experience or was this now just becoming part of your daily battle rhythm and it wasn't, you know, wasn't necessarily something worth reflecting on a whole lot at that point? It was daily battle rhythm by the end. Okay. All right. Yeah. I think after that, it was, you're pretty much locked in. And then mm -hmm. when this next deployment, we go into Afghanistan or Iraq. It's Iraq. Okay. Like, let's go. Okay. And at this point, you're thinking it's a career, right? Yeah. hundred percent. I thought I was going to be in. I would have signed a 20 year contract if that's what it took to get me into rip with, without blinking an eye. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, when you come back from Afghanistan, uh, what was the turnaround? What, what was the next deployment, uh, that was queued up for you guys? Was it supposed to be like a four month on four month off kind of rhythm that they were, they had you on or what, what was the layout? It was four month on and four month off. And then, uh, March 2003 was our next trip. So we got back October 2002. Um, a few months later, we're out the door for Iraq. And that twisted everything, So, especially for Ranger Regiment, because they sent all of Ranger Regiment, except for one company that was kept in Afghanistan. Um, other than that, it was all of Ranger Regiment, except for Charlie 275, if I recall correctly, um, were in the invasion of Iraq. And so did I hear you right before? So this is the one you, so you went in the invasion. You were part of the invasion. 
Yes. Yeah. That was okay. the next trade. All right. Okay. So, um, uh, did you have any thoughts, geopolitical or otherwise, going into Iraq, or were you just down for the fight? Regardless. What an excellent question. I should have had a lot of questions. Um, in reality, I was one hundred percent hooray. Like, parents yep. are getting divorced. Two Christmases, sweet. Like, there was zero questioning. I don't think I had any doubts in the military industrial complex. I had no doubts in the politicians. I was like, he's got WMD. Colin Powell just said it. Like, let's go. Let's get this going. Um, looking back now, it's obviously a very different view in terms of manufactured consent in the media, jumping on board to spin this up. And then conveniently, when the war is no longer going in our favor, they just stop reporting on it. And then you have most of America not even knowing they've got soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq towards the end. Um, so now it's a very different viewpoint but at the time. I will not tell you now, nor will I ever say that I had any moral quandary. I was just ready to, it was, it was like, cool. You're going to the Super Bowl again. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, I'm assuming you had multiple engagements when you were in Afghanistan. Yes. So talk about the difference, if you will, between that and Iraq. I mean, CQB now becoming a big thing or what was it for you? What was the experience like? CQB was the thing um, in Afghanistan. It was largely quiet. We would get shot at. We would get attacked. But for the most part, the Taliban was very much uh, licking their wounds, laying low. The vast majority fled across the border to Pakistan at any time to have an impact. I mean, any time to have an impact in Afghanistan would have been after the initial invasion, which I think most military historians and academics would tell you. You've And I've heard this from a guy who's done his PhD on the subject, that there's a very specific golden hour following a military victory where that's what you have to work with. So Afghanistan was uh, much more quiet. And to the extent we were in gunfights, you know, it's it's guns and rocket propelled grenades or 107 rockets coming at you. Um, IEDs killed one guy, killed a, a SEAL, Team 6 guy when I was there, running out of Asadabad. And I remember at the time they were like, oh, yeah, like we lost him from an IED. And I was like, what's that? I'm like, oh, oh, an improvised explosive device. It's basically a homemade bomb. And I was like, oh, fascinating. Um, so that was 2002, 2003 Iraq was nice, man. We've, we f- launched from Saudi flew in a, in an MC one thirty nap of the earth infill with anti-aircraft guns, lighting up the windows on both sides, shooting at the planes in and out. They had to, they had to pull up to get to 500 feet of altitude to drop us. Then you've got wow. full-scale artillery still in play. You've got enemy tank formations. We were maneuvering around with our, um, you know, our mechanized convoy. We were driving basically unarmored Humvees. You would put sandbags as like blast protection. Yeah. Um, and we were basically running around Western Iraq, dodging tanks, tank formations. You know, they were steering us around. I remember it one night, like driving blackout and seeing an enemy anti-aircraft piece like 250 meters away and them calling it in for an airstrike after we left so we didn't like reveal ourselves and i was like i could hit this dude with my fucking m4 right now um and then just legit like not mortar rounds incoming like artillery rounds incoming um so it was legit like full military hardware um to the extent that nobody in our unit other than our first sergeant who had jumped into Panama had seen before. And you guys jumped into Iraq, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, no, 
500 feet and, and jump. What, what was that? One oscillation, pretty much, if that half an oscillation after opening. It was uh, lower your rucksack, hear the boom of it hitting, think, was that my ruck? And then pounding into concrete, consistency sand as hard as a human being could possibly pummel carrying more gear. Like you ever ask anybody like, Oh, what was a combat jump? Like, like the correct answer is heavy. The correct answer is always heavy because you've got your, what they'll allow you to jump in training, which is already fucking horrific uh, in terms of weight. And then in combat, there's stuff in every frag smoke grenade. Like we lived out of our rucks for a month of the invasion. You know, we didn't see our, the rest of our bags and stuff that we'd pack. Um, so do you yeah. Have, the, do you have mop gear with you? yeah oh fun fact um yeah so you know you get the protective mask in the army right and then you have that needle in it. it's like atropine or whatever and they're like oh don't don't use your pro mask as a pillow because the atropine could stab you in the neck and you'll die so on a combat jump they strap it to your fucking nuts you wrap you wrap the strap around your waist and you have it hanging between your legs and your rucksack is pushing down on it your rigged rucksack over your thighs is pushing down on a protective mask and yeah we jumped in um mop level whatever they were like these desert fatigue um super heavy like anti-chemical suits jesus that sounds super comfortable wow um where'd you guys jump into did you jump into baghdad no 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 we were um so interestingly yeah there was going to be a jump on Baghdad. They were going to jump on Baghdad International. It was going to be a, um, I think, two companies of Rangers, if I recall correctly. And then the follow-on forces, there was like a wave at 18 hours, a wave at 24 hours, and then bringing in 82nd. Um, so when I got to Iraq, I was actually late, or I got to Saudi Arabia before the invasion. I was late because I was driving a, uh, I had to take one of the GMVs, one of the military vehicles, like an unarmored Humvee again. Um, so my guys had already flown over there. I was on the trail end. Um, and then when I walked in, they were like, we parked the trucks and they were like, hurry up, get over here, like company formation. And it was an initial manifest call for combat jump on the Baghdad International being wow. announced by a first sergeant who'd already jumped into Panama and Afghanistan. He's going for his third. Wow. So that jump ended up getting uh, kanked less than 24 hours later. I later talked to an Intel dude and he said the, um, they basically had anti-aircraft pieces mounted on top of hospitals and the number of anti-aircraft assets blocking the flight corridor in all directions around Baghdad International, like numbered in the hundreds, if not a thousand or more. And they were like, the estimates were going to like, how many planes of Rangers would we lose on the way in? Wow. So that got scratched. Um, uh. There was uh, Alpha Company 375 did a jump onto an airfield, I think the night after we did might've been the same night in March. We jumped onto a desert landing strip um, in Al-Qaim, Iraq. So Western Iraq, Northwestern um, secured a desert landing strip. And then they started landing the planes, offloading the helicopters. And uh, we held that for about a week before going to Murad around Iraq. Okay. Was there contact when you guys took the airport? Yeah. Fascinating. So they picked, pool table flat they need something they can land c-130s on um and c-17s rather so mc-130s dropped us we landed in c-17s there was so when we were under canopy like i just thought it was like it was like lightning you just see everything's like bright um but it was anti-aircraft fire from them shooting at the plane so i was 
there were four planes that dropped us. I was in the third. So they were shooting at the front runners of the, of the flight. Um, not the guys under canopy, like the pilots and the first bird made it out. They were opening up, but the area we were in was pretty secluded desert. Um, they probed us while we were there living in holes in the ground. Um, but it wasn't until <laughs> I, I told the story on, on the Jack Carr's podcast. I apologize. This is double dipping oh, for anybody, but, um, <laughs> they probed us and I'd be at, at night. I'd see like the glint of a windshield on the horizon just a car stationary and then it would like back out of sight. So they, they pretty much mapped us out where we were. And then the night we were leaving, just collapsing the company perimeter, flying a flight out to H1, I believe the other uh, airfield that the alpha company 375 jumped onto fly out a platoon land MC-130 fly out another platoon. And then uh, my platoon was the last ones on the ground. The last perimeter was like, we'd collapse down to a platoon and um, the bird landed and at its turnaround point, they waited until the last bird. We all mm. the all the helicopters were loaded up, gone. Uh, they were very smart about it, and they went for the grand slam of taking out a an MC one thirty when there was nothing we could do to stop it. Um, and I happened to be looking at the plane like when the first mortar round hit, like a couple hundred meters off, and it went from like oh we're in chalk formation to like get on the fucking bird and just. We hauled ass. Like, obviously, the bird shifted, um, kept the ramp down. The pilots were just like, as they're walking mortar rounds in, we're hauling ass. And you're running through a brownout, right? Because the props, got four yeah, turbo props. Sure. You can't see anything. And it's like, oh, better not trip. And basically, we all pot, like dog piled out of the back of a C-130, kind of like control, like raced up an ATV, up the back gate and then they as soon as like the last guy was on they started taxiing full throttle with the ramp still closing at liftoff so a very uneventful deployment uneventful deployment. Yeah, yeah 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 totally run of the mill you should, you should keep the podcast going man we're gonna lose <laughs> listeners by the minute clock's ticking chris <laughs> if there was only something interesting we could talk about um was that was that the tail end of the deployment then for you or were they just that moving the you beginning that was, that was the, beginning. the beginning of the deployment. Yeah. And then where did you go after that? Uh, we were running out of H1. We did a lot of stuff. Um, did a lot of mobility stuff, large scale clearance stuff, and then um, ended up in Haditha. Um, and that's got big connotations because yeah. that was a major, major combat engagement. But my when my platoon got there, so it was the company that didn't get a combat jump, Bravo company, drove through the desert to get to Haditha. They were in massive multi-day uh, firefight. Um, and then with some special mission unit guys. And then when my platoon landed, like the night we landed in like an MH 47, it was taking artillery. Um, and we got to the dam and then, um, but all the carnage for the most part, all the direct contact was done. So it was just bodies everywhere. Yeah. Um, surrounding the dam, like you're pulling guard next to like piles of human corpses sure. in all directions. Um, so anything you've heard about what they went through at Haditha is probably not overstated. Um, and then, yeah, we were basically running around northwestern Iraq the rest of the time. Was it all mobility stuff? Was it still clearance? No, there was CQB too. Um, yeah large scale. And that was also a wake up call because, um, 
I think in Afghanistan, we'd learned, oh, you can't huck a flashbang like you do in training in one of these things because the room just turns into total brownout. Um, in Iraq, we did like large scale clearance stuff and massively complex urban objectives and like very quickly learned like, oh, fuck, we're running out of like breaching rounds for the shotgun. So it becomes pulley tools, bolt cutters, smashing in windows, you know, whatever we had to do because it wasn't like there was a lot of resupply options at the time. Generally, at that point, 2003, who are you you running into mostly? Was it still Saddam's people? Was it still Republican Guard? Or was there... Were you starting to see Iranian presence there? I can't point to definitively any Iranian presence, and I don't know what the historical record is on how soon they were involved. Um, but at the time, it was it was formal military forces and what fill in the fill in the blank of armed Iraqis who were getting their country invaded, and all they knew was whatever propaganda they'd heard from Saddam, just like the only thing we knew is the only propaganda we'd heard from Bush. Um, and I know at one point attacks stopped at a certain place because they dropped leaflets saying like, we are not going to blow up Haditha dam. Like we are not here to destroy the dam and flood all these, you know, these, that's what they had heard. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a series of unfortunate misunderstandings, I'm sure. But some of the people were just, picking up an AK and trying to defend their country. Same as, uh, same as you or I would. Are you bitter about Iraq? I wouldn't say I'm any more bitter about Iraq than I am about the whole, uh, enterprise at this point. Again, speaking with the benefit of hindsight, I think, sure. I think, um, you know, there was a political agenda for, they wanted certain geopolitical aims met. They were twisting that the way they wanted it to go on the day of 9-11. Um, there's documented memos from September 11th, 2001. How do we link this to Iraq? Um, so, and then I've obviously, as I said, I, I'm no big fan of now, again, with the benefit of hindsight, the media machine spinning up the war drums and manufacturing consent uh, for everybody. Um, not that I needed any convincing, but I mean, for just rational, sound-minded citizens um, spinning up the war drums. And then when it's no longer politically viable to admit that this is going on year after year with no end in sight, then they just stop reporting on it. So I think, you know, the the whole 20-year run made me pretty, I'd say, distrustful to the point of like, I don't even listen to them of mm-hmm. uh, not saying this is the right answer. It's just for me personally, sure. like I don't care what my government has to say about anything. I don't care what the media has to say about anything. Um, and I can also say it's the benefit of I'm a civilian now. So I don't have to listen to them. And I just treat everybody I meet like human beings, the same as I treat my kids and we get along fine. There's, there's no issues. Um so I don't, I don't really buy into anytime the media goes, oh, this divisiveness and we're getting torn away. Like, it's like, you know what? I, I'm not seeing that where I'm at. So I don't, I don't watch. I stopped watching the news actually when I was in the military. Um, and when I was in high school, Chris, uh, I went to some ROTC or Academy day and there was a special forces Lieutenant Colonel there. And I like went up to this. He was like, Hey, could I ask you a few questions, sir? 
And he was like, oh yeah, you want to know about ROTC? I was like, actually, I, I don't really care. Like I'm, I'm enlisting. And, you know, I, I, I was like, I just want to talk to you about SF. And anyway, we started talking and he, he said at one point, um, he was like, you're going to do fine. I can tell by looking at you, like you're going to do fine. But he's like, you're probably going to end up, you're not going to watch the news at some point. If you stay in special operations long, you're going to stop watching the news. And he's like, I don't watch the news anymore. And it was like, yeah. there was like a Russian sub that was underwater, you know, it malfunctioned and the guys were banging out SOS calls and the Russians were blocking everybody's like, my first thought with that was X, Y, Z nuclear ABC. Um, and he's like, you're, you're going to learn pretty quick when you're a special operations, like what the, what they're reporting is not the truth. So that was, I mean, he told me I was like 17 years old, maybe 16. And I was like, holy shit, turned out to be very true. I stopped watching the news when I was in the military. I was like, no, I'm going to read the intelligence reporting and that's all I'm going to care. I don't, I don't care what the, <laughs> what the news agencies are spinning. Um, and then later on, and I was special forces in Afghanistan, my team was the only U.S. presence in a certain area. And I was... I had people sending me news reports of these yeah, yeah. special forces missions going on in an area that were not going on. Yeah. Yeah. Who's making it up to what end? I don't know or care. I just like, you know, whether it's just bad reporting, bad source, media spin, trying to get ratings. I don't, I don't care what the media says and I don't care what the politicians say. That's, that's kind of my angle at this point in my life. No, no. And I, I can completely understand that. I guess I asked that question. Because um, I was thinking of the Shadow Strike series when David Rivers, I mean, one of the early chapters, he saves that little girl. Yeah. Um, right. And there's that talk, uh, or, or I can't remember if, if, I guess it's David Rivers was written in the first person. So I, I guess it's his thoughts that, uh, you know, um, hey, they're just like us. Um, oh, no, that was, that was Cancer's talk. Uh, yep. When cancer says that to him, right, and he says, "Hey, they're, we're we're all exactly the same," which I was I was sitting there, again, in the middle of epithets on a twenty five hour drive. But I was thinking, I was in between cursing out uh, United Airlines. I was like, um, "Hmm, I've heard that before," and I guess I I asked that because now you brought that up about you know, hey, you're doing CQB and. Some of these guys were just picking up a weapon because it's their home and here we are and they're fighting back and all that. And um, I'm just curious because I know, you know, I feel like every interview we do, it's, you know, we're all blind people describing the elephant, right? And trying to figure out, hey, from your piece, what did you fucking see? Because this yep. is what I saw and all that. Um there's so there's no really polite way to ask this so i'll just say it were there things you saw that you regretted that you were like god damn that that should not have fucking happened this was wrong that there was on the tactical level there was something wrong happening because of whatever reason whether it's bad intelligence hit the wrong house um or just the geopolitics involved that hey you know 80 percent of the these you know, targets we're hitting are fucking, you know, fruit vendors or something. And they're just, you know, um, becoming a de facto militia because we're here. Um, was there stuff like that that you saw that was starting to color your worldview? Yeah, the the clearest example that comes to mind was um, 
during the invasion of Iraq, um, a sister company, so Alpha Company 375, they got, they had a car pull up, a pregnant woman jump out, legitimately pregnant woman jump out, run to them asking for help. Three guys went to go help her and she detonated um, a suicide vest. And they later found she was, she was like Iraqi intelligence, whatever, um, blew up herself and her unborn child. And, um, it, you know, in the moment you're like mother of God, but with the tactical aspect of that was, was there was no fucking around with like, nobody's getting close to us. So yeah. when we'd be on the road, um, this is actually in a way it's, it's an incredible level of restraint, but when we would be running on the road blackout at night and there's this, there's the vehicle coming our way, we would stop the trucks, um, let them get closer, turn on the headlights. So they'd stop. And then we would send dudes to rip them out of the car, search the vehicle, whatever, whatever. Um, and then it would be flex cuff them, bring them away from the area, send them on their way with some MREs and some bottles of water and destroy the vehicle. That was the MO. And I kept a journal. <laughs> it was, uh, on both my deployments, the, both of those first two. And I, I wrote at one point, and this is, I was 19 years old, private. And I was like, we're creating insurgents. Like we are hundred percent creating insurgents. If that guy didn't have any animosity towards America, he certainly does now. And that being said, it was at a place in the war. It was not, it was as far from the American 18 year olds dressed like RoboCop or in every street corner. Right. This was, you're out there on your own. Um, so I'm not going to, second guess the tactical decisions right. or i don't even know right. what level that that decision came from because i know it wasn't uh platoon leadership um but we didn't get blown up for what that's worth but we did create um a lot of insurgents and then i think for later in the war and just throughout my entire experience the hardest hitting thing is just the civilian casualties yeah. um of which there are a lot in any war, despite anybody what anybody will tell you. I mean, estimates for Afghanistan and Iraq vary from like is it like 125,000 to like 800,000 because nobody fucking knows. Right. We don't report on it. Enemy forces don't report on it, but that's what happens. Um, so the hardest hitting thing is, um, you know, you never, I never killed civilians. But I was there in the spot and they were shooting at me and civilians either got hit in the crossfire or they drove over an IED that was intended for us because we were in an area. Um, and then being, you know, up close and personal with the human carnage of sure. men, women and children who want nothing to do with the war. They didn't ask for it. Um, they're just that's where they were born. Same as if, you know, it had been me in their position. Um that's the hardest thing to reconcile is the collateral damage. It sounds very, very sanitized and they reference that on the news, but uh, you know, up close and personal, as you know, it's, it's anything but, and it's not the politicians who bear the psychological impact of, of encountering that because they never see it. Sure. Um, but yeah, the, the people who volunteered and served the military industrial complex, myself included, you know, we're the ones left with those, those memories and that, um, those scars that we have to figure out if and how to heal. I'm not saying this to be facetious. I'm saying this because uh, this is, I think you're, you're touching on something that is um, worth touching on. 
how do we do better? How do you, if, if, if you're in a, a combat zone, cause I, you know, I, I'm tracking everything you're saying. And at the same time, I'm going, God damn. Um, I mean, yeah, if we were Russian paratroopers in Afghanistan, we would just fucking burn the whole goddamn village. We could have done that too and walked away. And that had just been between us and God instead, you know, lesser two evils. Okay. So we rip the people out of the van. We give them an MRE and waters. We do have to destroy the, or we do have to destroy the, the vehicle, you know, but it's like, um, you know, there's almost, there's no good decisions uh, as far as I can see. But what's your take? What's the, what's the, what would have been better? So what would have been better is um, in any situation, not, not 9-11 specifically, what would be better in any situation is not going to war. And then when it's necessary, um, using the minimal force possible. So, you know, again, benefit of hindsight, 9-11 was 19 hijackers, you know, predominantly Saudi, zero Afghanis. Um, so you have a clear-cut just war for the counterterrorism mission against al-Qaeda. Um, there's the disparity between that using tier one guys, intelligence assets, whatever you have to do to fight that, which will still, by the way, result in collateral damage. However, sure. kind of the alternative is we're going to turn a medieval civilization into Topeka, Kansas in a record time. It'll just take a few years and they're going to be a U.S. ally hereafter. So we're going to funnel, um, you know, millions of U.S. troops over two decades in an endless counterinsurgency that reaches reaches a preordained conclusion, which, according to the historical narrative, was all but inevitable. Um, and then, to the extent it's not inevitable, it would have been a federalist government system that respects the tribes and allows them to maintain their local control, not a centralized government trying to make it look like America, which, as I as I understand, is what cars I wanted. Um, so not going to war would be the first thing. And then the second thing would be minimal appropriate force necessary to meet the actual threat, not the politically aggrandized threat of we want to get in this area. This is a geopolitical aim or a military industrial complex aim. Like we want to keep this going. Um, but in terms of what you can do different for the men and women who are actually serving on the ground um, that are volunteering for this. I don't think there's anything they can do different. I never saw any yeah. particular like animosity towards civilians. I know that it happened from the publicized accounts of, um, you know, Abu Ghraib, the American service members who like raped that Iraqi girl, burned the house down, recover the evidence from, you know, Staff Sergeant Bales just walking off post and right. murking a bunch of innocent right. Af Afghan civilians. Um, I know it's out there, um, and that is. Also, I would argue unavoidable. I don't. Yeah. You. I don't think any historian is going to contradict me and say, "Well, here in this war, there were never any undistracted yeah, right. taken." Like, right, right. War fucks people up. Some people are fucked up before war, and really messed up stuff's going to happen. So, at the political level, it becomes: How do you not turn this into an open-ended counterinsurgency with no end in sight, or even possible, um, through this? Byzantine complex of competing goals, which is certainly what we had in Afghanistan, where pretty early on the generals couldn't tell you like what we were trying to do, what was going on, because it just became the only acceptable end state was turn them into America, which is not going to happen for any country, nor should it. It's not how they operate. Um, so trying to centralize all these systems created a, a recipe for 
pretty predictable failure. Do you think the Marshall Plan? I know, I know, we're getting a little off topic, but I'm sorry, you're making too many interesting points, so I, I can't. It's just making me think. Do you think the Marshall Plan was worthwhile, though? When we took Japan and Germany, two countries with very different identities, and I wouldn't say we turned them into America, but we allowed them to become at least peaceful versions of themselves in ways that do, do mirror America, capitalist, democratic, um, but peaceful, um, and two innately belligerent countries, by the way. Um, do you think that's at all a template for Iraq and Afghanistan, or could have been, or should have been? I don't think it could have been or should have been. The reason being, um, this is not my argument. This is the argument I agree with that is posited by scholars with a lot more knowledge than I have. I just happen to agree with it from what I've sure. seen. Sure. Um, <laughs> Germany and Japan were nations with a strong national identity, infrastructure. Um, they were countries in every sense of the word, whereas Vietnam... Afghanistan, Iraq are almost entirely colonial constructs of borders trying to rope together different ethnic um, and trying to make them play ball. So I think the template that worked for Germany and Japan does not apply to countries that are not strong national identity, functioning infrastructure, functioning governance, however mismanaged, um, which is what we had in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Um, I think the, uh, someone at Halliburton or Northrop Grumman or someone is fucking with our internet line. Cause a good chunk of that just cut right out. Um, but, Jesus uh, Christ. yeah, I know really it might be my internet, man. Oh no, it's it, listen, it, inshallah, it's with the gods. I mean, um, but I, I, let me sum up what I think I just heard and tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, that basically, uh, Germany and Japan had their own national identities their own infrastructure, and they were not colonies to begin with, whereas Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, all were post-colonial, and their lines, their borders um, had been shaped by colonialism. So there was something innately different that was never going to be pacified, and and, uh, the threat was never going to be mitigated the way we would have wanted, uh, the way we did with the two sovereign countries of Germany and Japan. Is that pretty much right? Correct. Yeah. Two countries with fully functioning infrastructure and a strong national identity are not the case study and how it applies to um, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, which are arbitrarily drawn colonial boundaries around a smorgasbord of different uh, tribal and ethnic identities and trying to get them to play ball as one unified country um, when they don't identify as that. They identify as Pashtun, Tajik. Pick your cliche. Um, it's it's not a recipe for success in these arbitrarily designed colonial areas. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Do you ever see those pictures of Kabul in the seventies? You see those famous pictures yeah. of like the girls in the miniskirts and everything. Yep. Where at one point Kabul was going to be the Paris of the of Central Asia. Yeah, you know, and they were like going to be fa- fashion forward and all yep. that. And it's like, yeah, it's amazing. I know the. Uh, did you ever read that book Afghanistan by? David, oh, he's an anthropologist, like traveled through the fucking country, but it's like, it was just called Afghanistan, but it's like one of those major anthropological books, Um, but he talked about the Swiss cheese form of government that Afghanistan could have had where they carve out the mountain regions. They're just like, yeah, they're backwoods dudes, just leave them alone, focus on 
the rest of the part of the cheese, not just do carve outs and just have these Swiss cheese uh, carve outs for, for the mountains and leave them alone and have everybody else work like cantons, work like Swiss cantons, basically. Uh, I thought it was a really interesting, um, interesting piece. Anyway, um, I say all this because, and I'm jumping ahead. We'll jump back to chronological order here in a second, but I'm jumping ahead. But is a lot of that, is a decent amount of that part of your motivation in writing? Have you found the, the chance to uh, talk geopolitics, think through geopolitics, discuss geopolitics? Um, is, is a part of your motivation for writing? Yes, yeah, so to answer your first question, I haven't read that book, but it I don't disagree with anything you said in summary. Um, I actually had a platoon sergeant who told me he did some raid. They flew out in a helicopter somewhere in the mountains, like raided a village, expecting to find all these, you know, senior Al-Qaeda, whatever. Um, and the villagers had no idea who they were, didn't didn't know what 9-11 was, had no Taliban no affiliation with anything. The interpreters could barely understand their dialect. Yeah. And the interpreters were like, just, just, just get out of here. Like this is as backwards as it gets. They have nothing to do with any, anyone. They don't even know what we're talking about. They don't even know how to understand the questions we're asking. Yeah. Um, when we marched through fucking Chagall Valley first anniversary of nine 11, like the, the people thought we were Russians. Yeah. I they thought we were Russian sure. soldiers. So sure. um, that's, that's one year after nine 11 in Afghanistan. Um, one more vignette, I'll tell you uh, on that note. This is also 100% factual. This is 2010. Um, there was somewhere out east, and I was I, I was in like a staff shop at the time uh, when I heard this report. There was some like German team out in eastern Afghanistan. There had been a landslide at some place in the mountains, and the village elder approached the German team saying that a dragon had awoken from its cave um caused this landslide and they were requesting the largest non-nuclear munition the u.s had um to bomb this dragon so the landslide would stop and these are people with cell phone technology but that is the level of thinking in some places like yeah. you are not turning that around in 20 years um now that's not emblematic of the vast majority of afghanistan which no. are highly highly educated people um in many of the urban areas and then much more well-informed people in some of the rural areas but that's what you're talking about when you talk about afghanistan as one country it's taking that surgeon in kabul and lumping him yep. together with the guy in the mountains who thinks that a dragon right. caused the landslide right. um and to answer your question about the books i think writing for me isn't so much about geopolitics that becomes you know that that does come into yes. the books i have to research it um and i do like to shine light on issues in u.s foreign policy and local issues through failed governance i like to highlight all that stuff but the main thing writing does for me is just catharsis like you you know you congratulated me on the pace at which i've been writing so i started therapy this year um, with a extremely good psychotherapist and he's like there is an addictive and or compulsive element to your writing, to the way in which you approach writing. Um, and like, I reflect on it. I was like, yeah, I, it's like, I haven't had a choice, right? Cause yeah. that's writing has been the only way I can make sense of the world and my actions within it, particularly yeah. as a willing participant 
in you know multiple wars over a protracted period, the majority of my adult life, the entirety of my adult life up until a few years ago. Okay, we're gonna get more into that. Um, he he stole my thunder because uh, yeah, that's I totally agree. There's something incredibly compelling both in each book that I looked at, and also when taken overall, it, there is I, I, that that seems incredibly perceptive. Um, but I want to ask. You mentioned that you had been journaling in the first deployment and the second deployment. Was this the first time you'd ever journaled and just been taking notes about stuff? Yes. Yeah. The first two deployments, writing, I did daily accounts of pretty much everything. Um, and then for my next deployment as lieutenant, it was a year long. And I also kept the detailed journal of everything. And that was my only journaling experience was on deployment. Yes. What was the motivation to start journaling on that first deployment? Was there a sense that you were capturing the first draft of history or what, what, what was it just for you? What were you thinking? That's a good question. I've, I've never thought about it. I just did it. I guess, I guess the historical component of like, here's what it's like on the ground would have um, played a significant role, but um yeah, I don't know. Maybe intuitively, I just sense I want to like look back on this later in my life and and see like what my involvement had been. I don't know. That's a that's a good question. I don't have any clear cut answer that came to me at the time. Huh? Did you? What were you journaling? Was it your thoughts? Was it specific actions? Was it phrases, descriptions? Was it all the above? What was it that you would capture? All the above. Okay. All okay. the above. Yeah. Okay. How do you still have those journals? Yes. Do you look at them at all? No, no. I've got uh, I've got one like Pelican tough box um, with like all my remaining military shit packed into it, sitting in the garage. I've not um, I've not revisited them. I don't think since. That'd be interesting. That'd be, I'd be. I see you nodding, Chris. I see you nodding. <laughs> It'd be interesting to know. It'd be interesting to know what 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 stood out to you. Um, do you? Uh, how did you find the experience of just journaling? Um, did you find it at the time? Did you find it cathartic as well, or did you? Uh, was there a sense of like, hey, if something happens to me, this shit, I don't know what the hell's going to happen with this. I don't know if anybody's ever going to read it. Um, you know, what what did it mean for you at the time to be journaling? What was your takeaway? What was you, what did you get out of it? I think at the time I was just trying to document the war and my participation in it. Um, I don't think there was any, even in the back of my mind, thought of catharsis. Um, you know, early on in the conflict, um, post-traumatic stress was considered like that was the Vietnam thing. That's you you come back from Vietnam, you're getting spit on um by the people you were supposedly protecting. Um Clearly that would cause issues and PTSD was more or less a punchline for us. And I even remember um, when I was at West Point, a senior leader from the uh, 75th Ranger Regiment came and did a briefing and was talking about um, like regiment's participation in the war to date and highlighted with pride that the only cases of post-traumatic stress in 75th Ranger Regiment up to 2004 had been the individuals who had to, um, when they went on the Jessica Lynch rescue, mm -hmm. um, 
it was the individuals who were digging up the bodies and not just the bodies, but the female bodies, um, the female, the body of female, I think her name was Hope. Um, when they dug up a female body, they got PTSD, but nobody else. Now, one point that I met a uh, first range battalion guy who was on that when I was during invasion, he came to Haditha Dam and I don't even remember how we started talking, but he was on that and he was like, yeah, we got the, like the intel on um, the bodies were buried out here in the soccer field pulled up our trucks, used the headlights. We had nothing prepared for dangerous, the E-tools, right? Your little foldable yeah. shovels you use for fighting positions. So guys are digging them up with that, pulling out bodies with their hands. And he did tell me um, when they dug up, the, when they pulled up the female, some guys got fucked up. Um, but two fascinating notes on, you know, when a senior member of 75th Ranger Regiment came and briefed that, there's the only cases of post-traumatic stress in regiment. Um, I, at the time, this is looking back. I was at West Point with significant post-traumatic stress that I didn't recognize because it didn't involve flashbacks. It didn't involve bad dreams. It didn't involve any of that. Um, and I looked at that as somebody with active PTSD, overactive PTSD, and nodded, not seeing any contradiction whatsoever. Sure. Um, and now, of course, we know this this stuff does not manifest immediately. And in terms of the human cost for the people who served, um, the 22 vets a day figure of suicides among um, former service members, that's not scratching the iceberg. The majority of those suicides, if you look into the data, are like over the age of 55. So we haven't begun to see the human cost in terms of veteran suicides. As horrific as what we've seen has been, um, that's all that's all coming down the pipes. Like it's not going away. It's, I don't, I can't begin to speculate how many trillions of dollars we've incurred oh. aside from just funding two wars on deficit spending um, of what we've incurred financially as a nation, just for the basic medical treatments of people who are going to be having these issues until the end of their lives. Yep. Yep. That's, um, that is absolutely a thing. What the hell? Let's go down a rabbit hole a bit on this. Hit me. Uh, so PTS. Uh, you talked about you were going through, you know, so much stuff uh, sitting at West Point and listening to the the uh, Ranger Colonel talk about, um, you know no PTSD cases, no what have you. Um, do you think PTS is too broad a term? Do you think it's specific enough to actually identify the problems that need to be treated? Or is it... And I'm asking from... I, I, I have a bias, I guess, but I don't know enough to really be really solid in my bias against the terminology. Um, so I'm, I'm really legitimately asking, do you think it's just too broad a term um, and that too much can fit under that umbrella in a way that lacks specificity and therefore lacks mitigation? Or is, or do you think that there is, that there's really meat on that bone in a way that can, um, that we can properly understand, diagnose and treat things and therefore it's a helpful term and a helpful diagnosis how's that for a, a very off topic 
rabbit hole? So it's a valid question. Um, I'm in no way qualified to answer it. However, comma, my uh, therapist specializes in vets. He's extremely, extremely good at what he does. Um, and may not in substantial amount of money every month. Um, and it's money well spent and I will continue doing so. Um, but he's got a large amount of expertise in this. And what he has told me is that the nature of post-traumatic stress, this is speaking in the military context, changes according to the conflict in which it was accrued. And the best guess at this time is that it comes down to the justification for war. So post-traumatic stress for a World War II veteran looks very different from post-traumatic stress for a global war on terror veteran. Um, and that he detailed these shifts, you know, what it looked like in this certain generational gap, what it looked like in terms of manifesting symptoms for this other generational gap. And there's there's not a lot of good data on it from what he's told me. But what he has seen and believes from the available data is, and from his anecdotal experience in treating veterans along with his circle of therapists that he's um, he's tight with for addressing this problem set, um, a lot of it comes down to the moral justification for the war that they were involved in. And he said the worst cases of um, post-traumatic stress occur in people who have lost their faith in the system that sent them or the war that they served in. And he said, when that psychologically protective architecture of, I was yeah. defending my country just cause people who pull the rug out under that and start picking apart military industrial complex, he's like, they bear a tremendously heavy price for trying to see the truth. Um, and he said with the current generation with global war on terror veterans, this information from psychiatry is all being privatized by the government and they're not making the data available, which he said, one is horrifying and two prevents the people who are treating these veterans on the civilian side from having access to anything that is that are data on trends, what's known to be working, what's known to not be working. And he said, uh, like psychiatry has failed the veteran terribly is a profession in terms of trying to come up with answers. So I think what you just asked is a question that's far more complicated than I can answer in terms of presenting, you know, viable data points. Like that's what I have from what yeah. he's told me. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, I didn't ask this up front. I, I will ask it now. W was yours a religious household? Was, did religion play a role in your upbringing? Yes and no. I was in a Roman Catholic household. I don't think my family was particularly religious. There was the occasional church service, but uh, at the age of 10, we moved from Wisconsin to Kentucky, and my parents thought the best education available was going to be a private school. So they nearly bankrupted themselves, sending three kids to Catholic school like when they couldn't afford it. Um, so I had a heavy dose of Catholicism uh, from, you know, middle school through the end of high school, but it, it wasn't really a thing at home in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And it never resonated with me, nor is any organized religion. And I think it was that exposure to organized religion, how off put I was by it, mm -hmm. um, that kept me from pursuing having any spiritual dimension whatsoever until much later in life when I 
started reapproaching things and being like, okay, there's a lot that's out there outside of these organized religions with the dogma and the human spin on what the fill in the blank prophet originally said. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, it was not a good experience for me, my exposure to religion. Um, and I know guys that have are have done incredibly well with organized religion and have even found organized religion. I know others that have been to war and lost their faith completely. Right. Um, for me personally, I, I never could buy into organized religion. It just never made sense to me. What What was the what was your reaction now after two combat deployments, let's say, let's just stop there for the moment um, towards religion. I mean, had, were you someone that had questioned even more? Had you now completely rejected? Did it affirm your sense of rejecting uh, institutional religion or was there any questions? Was there any uncertainty? Just what did that meant after, um, two no shit proper combat deployments what did that done for you as far as your take on religion or faith or spirituality so i think my problem was that i tied up spirituality as like you're either in an organized religion or you're not spiritual um that misconception i think kept me from doing any personal work for a really long time because i knew i could reject this categorically um exposure to war and, and don't get me wrong like i'll listen to what Jesus said all day. I will talk to you all day, like inform me about what Buddhist I'm interested, but there's a big difference between what the prophet said and the crusades and systematic institutionalized rape of innocent children, um, which have, which are known to us from historical and recent record. Um, But I think my exposure to war at the time reaffirmed that I definitely erred more on the side of this is random and meaningless. My exposure to combat throughout was this is chaos and I enjoyed the chaos. I fed on it. I returned as often as I could at increasing levels of authority. And when there was no more war to be had, when there was no more chaos to be had, I was like done. Um, like Afghanistan war one, you know, we got one last hurrah. I was like, I have no interest in um, serving the military. But yeah, my experience with combat was very much like I didn't see a lot of God factoring into it. Now I'll tell you the extent I've never doubted the existence of God, but I would say that factors into everything. However, in the specific combat context, I've never no magical like, oh, well, you guys are the good guys here. It comes down to like training, preparation and luck. In my experience. What kind of soldier did you find yourself becoming? Were you good? Were you good at war? Did you respond well in the sound of gunfire? Yes. Yeah. I Under the sound of gunfire, that's my happy place. And that's what I pursued when I was at West Point. Like I pursued adrenaline sports because it's that same construct of no shit, live or die. You have like three quarters of a second to take this action or you're going to burn in at the side of an antenna. Um, like that's my happy space. Even today, like driving somebody runs an intersection at 60 miles an hour or is about to T-bone us. Is there wildly like lane change? Like my split second reaction time is cat's nuts on point um, to where my wife is joking. If you had somebody following you around trying to kill you, like you wouldn't have any problems. Um, 
we had, I had Dodge coming home from Chris, I was steering with one hand, holding my wife's hand with the other, like driving back from Christmas, kids in the back. Uh, and somebody like flew out of a side street and I like swerved over into oncoming traffic, accelerated towards an oncoming vehicle to get over beyond the vehicle in front of us and avert all of this. And she was like, your like hand on mine didn't even like it tight. And I say that because I'm so non-functional in almost every aspect of civilian society. I am miserable at polite dinner conversations that don't involve any vulnerability or darkness or um, fundamental human truths, like polite conversation. I'm useless, like functioning societies, school events, you know, like I'm all about my kids, but I'm not like one of the normal parents there that's just enjoying the day. Um, and I've had to keep just immersing myself in the cast through writing at this point, because that's how I make sense of life. When you came back now after two deployments, was it, was life different for you at Ranger Bat? I mean, no more hazing, right? I mean, everybody's kind of over that now, right? Everybody's kind of bonded a little bit more tabbed or not no tabbed. Like you, you've yeah. been through the shit together, right? It, it was an interesting dynamic because the, the methodology at Ranger Regiment is you come and you're a, a shitbag new private um, until you go to Ranger school, which they send guys when they're like an E3, like private first class. We'll go to Ranger school. They come back. You're an E4 now. And now you can either be a tabbed saw gunner or a team leader, you know, but that's like the first step. And that was the only way you had any, you had credibility um, as a contributing member of the organization. So after combat started, that flipped in a very uh, strange way where if you had been at ranger school while the guys were gone and you came back, you're a team leader, but you have no combat experience. You're managing privates who have combat experience. Very interesting flip. So it went from if you'd been blooded in combat with the guys, you were good. Um, and the the tab became largely meaningless. It was a very strange dynamic and they hadn't come to terms with that when I left. And I you know within you know a year, a tab guy, team leader without combat experience was not going to happen. But yeah, when I was there, it was a very interesting, uncomfortable shift in the dynamics that had run Ranger Regiment throughout peacetime. That's for sure. Was there a significant difference just in the culture, in the Ranger back culture, um, once the war started, where it's not the 90s, it's not peacetime, it's not um, even what you went through post-RIP? Um, because now there's actually shit going on and we can't really be spending time just fucking having you low crawl through barracks all day long or something like it was, it was the, was there a cultural shift that way? Yes. Yes. Everything went to combat effectiveness, everything. Um, there were stupid little fuck, fuck games that remained for them to mess with the privates, but it was fading fast. And the onus was on, you're going to smoke these guys like you're going to be having them do they're doing machine gun drills they're doing whatever is going to have some applicability to combat because we're going back in a few months yeah and this yeah. would be time wasted if not spent that way what was your um off time like and i don't mean time off necessarily or leave but i mean when you would come back off rotation and you're idling waiting to go back over um what did you find yourself doing? Were you somebody that needed to keep sharpening your knives? Did you need to keep 
like, hey, I want to work on this, I want to work on that? Or were you finding hobbies? Were you finding pursuits? Or were you just uh, even more committed to the cause? I'd say more committed to the cause. I don't remember anything in my off time that was, I was not sharpening knives. Um, I've never been like a huge gun guy. Like for me, like guns, it's a, it's a toolbox. Right. Um, and it's best tool for the job. I was never like that emotionally attached to it. Um, yeah, all the time off was largely spent decompressing um, with alcohol. Okay. To recharge before going back in, going back into work going back on the next deployment. Were you making friends? Yeah, no, the, the guys were amazing. Um, I've got friends to this day from my time as a private where it's fascinating that the, um, there's a lawyer who's a partner in a law firm, um, here in North Carolina who's doing all the paperwork for my Afghanistan interpreters trying to get over to the United States still. Uh, pro bono, backed by full legal team, and it's a guy who's a private with me in three seven five two thousand one, two thousand two. That level of tightness, yeah. So phenomenal, phenomenal guys. Um, a few cases of like toxic leadership aside, um, absolutely stellar human beings. You've mentioned the toxic leadership a couple of times. What did you see that changing as the wars were going on, as the deployments were going on? What was happening to the toxic leaders? Were they becoming more toxic or were they getting weeded out or changing? What was happening with them? Weeded out. Okay. Weeded out. The most uh the most toxic individual was um he kind of revealed himself on deployment and got fired, never to return to Ranger Regiment. Um I'd say the the toxic leadership that I saw at that time, like they went away, they got weeded. Um, and when I came back in on the officer side, plenty of toxic leadership to be had. However, they were almost without exception in terms of toxic leadership and incompetent leadership. They hadn't done leadership in war. When they did their company command, they were garrison uh, or they, you know, had their rise to the officer ranks in peacetime and are suddenly trying to manage this. But I don't know anyone that I've personally encountered where I'd be like, this guy is a scumbag, uh, you know, terrible leader, either incompetent or toxic or both, um, because they usually go hand in hand. You can have incompetent without toxic, but you don't get toxic without incompetent, my experience. But they, when you start talking to guys like, hey, who was on a team with this guy? Who we, we know like, oh yeah, they like did a deployment here. They were like quiet area, like didn't see shit. So I don't know if there's a direct connection there, but it's been, yeah, in my experience, that's, that's been the case 10 times out of 10. Interesting. Very interesting. While you're saying that, I'm thinking of, um, I don't know. We could talk about this when we get to it, but I'm wondering if after on the back end of the wars, there was so much toxicity that I saw, but it was almost from people that were too experienced that had just burned out and gotten too salty. Um, you know, their, their cycles were off. There was just so much personal detritus in their past that there was, that there was a different kind of toxicity coming in. Um, Hmm. 
but that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, okay, after the Iraq deployment, West Point came next. Was that the major? Yeah, wicket? West Point Prep School. West Point okay. Prep School for a year. And so then, talk, uh, talk about Point. that path. What, what what led you to now going back and now being a lot more credible candidate for West Point and going to the prep school? How, how did that happen? Uh, I always wanted to be a, like when I made my decision in high school that I'm going to go to special operations, I decided I wanted to be like a Green Beret team leader. So the commander of the O3 captain position, the only officer on a, uh, the only commissioned officer on a special forces team, like that's what I wanted to do. So I still needed to become an officer. Um, and at the time we thought the wars were ending and I was lucky to get in the invasion because this is all going to be stable. Uh, we had peaceful Afghanistan in 2002. Then we had Iraq overwhelming military victory. And at that point it's like, yeah, the adults are about to step in. It's wars going away. So my thought process was, um, and again, going back into the history of special operations or war, you know, that special operations yeah. involved in, um, being these short duration conflicts, I wanted to get my college degree out of the way, get my commission out of the way so I could be an officer for the next war because uh, it's not going to be Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah. The the adults are running stuff now. It's, it's all going to be fine, Chris. <laughs> um, first off, what was the conversation like to leave Ranger Bat to do that? So interestingly, they were pretty supportive of what I wanted to do. Um, I did it. There was shit talking among some of the guys. There was shit talking among some of the NCOs because they were like, why would you want to be an officer? Go to the dark side, blah, blah, blah. Right. Fundamentally, they supported me. Um, you know, and I had two deployments with them. They knew who I was by then. They, you know, um, I think the worst accusation I had was somebody saying I was just like punching a, a resume ticket Mm. at ranger regiment you know uh but largely they were supportive they knew who i was they they knew i wanted to get on my life and everything um i did have the officers pulled me aside uh west point graduates included and told me in no uncertain terms that if i wanted to be an officer i needed to do green to gold and do rotc or I needed to, um, yeah, that was it. Cause I needed a degree. I couldn't just go to OCS. They told me to do green to gold. They were like, West Point's fucking miserable. It's, it's unbearable. If you have no combat experience, if you have combat experience, like you're going to lose your mind. We support you become an officer. Do let us, let us shift to a green to gold packet. We will write you all the recommendations. And I was like, duly noted. I'm going for it. West Point, here we come. And he said, okay, uh, my platoon leader wrote me, I wish I still had a copy. I remember seeing his like letter recommendation and it read like a medal of honor citation. Like, he did, yeah. he, you know, he was like, clearly like, he was like, I'm going to support you all the way. Um, and he did. And I went there and it wasn't until I got to West Point that I was like, they were right. Shouldn't have come here at all. <laughs> and by then it was, it was too late. So you talked about like you wanted to be an SF officer, and that's one thing. But why West? Why were you so dead set on West Point? I suffered from the misconception that it was in some way the most elite, the hardest. Um, 
now you can I can look at it and be like, you're working with college kids for some basic running around the woods stuff um, before they go off to officer basic training where all graduates end up together. Um, instead of looking at it that way, which is how I do now, I thought it was in some way like more elite, difficult. It was the hardest thing to do. And the main thing above all else was they told me I couldn't go. They rejected me out of high school. I didn't even get into yeah. the prep school. Yeah. When I reapplied from the army, they were like, you can go to the prep school for a year and apply again. And that's the road I took. Uh, how did it feel coming to the prep school? Did it feel like it was beneath you? Did you start to get, is that when you started to first go, ah, oh, this isn't, I should have listened or was it, did it not, had that not set in yet? Here's where it set in at the prep school. It wasn't that I thought the place is beneath me. Um, it wasn't that I realized I was going to have to do stupid shit at all. But we had, you know, at the time I thought, you know, all these West Point cadets that got in, they're all these walking gods among men, amazing. And then I got to the prep school and they had some recent West Point graduates that were doing like athletic coaching um, for that summer before they went to their officer basic course. And, um, you know, they're like the football team coaches, the track team coaches and stuff. Um, and I met recent West Point graduates that got in on an athletic deal, right? They're a football player and couldn't breathe with their mouth closed, not to put too fine a point on it. And I was like, and then I'm with a roommate who never broke four figures on the SAT um, you know, had like it, that's 1600 scale, like he had a 900 something and he's meeting a demographic quota somewhere else and all good people. But that was my first, like looking back is like, this is what was, was getting in. And I was willing to sign a 20 year contract could have lectured at length about special operations history as a 17 year old kid, you know? Um, and none of that was valued all the, and I got the congressional nominations, no problem, but that was the only time anybody asked like, Hey, why do you want to be in the fucking army? Why do you want to lead men into combat? It was all during the congressional interviews. And I got the congressional nomination, but all West point cared about was what's your GPA? What's your race? What's your athletics? Like, what do you bring an athletic program? Um, so when I went to prep school, it was, um, minorities, athletic scholarship and prior service. And the exceptions to that, I could count on one hand and they were, their parents were connected. So that was my first, like, wait a minute, am I entering into an unholy system where, you know, it's not all magical. Like I thought, uh, and I was like, that's, this is why I couldn't get in. Um, that was my first like wake up moment in that regard. Who are the other prior service people? Uh, there was a variety. There were a couple other Rangers, um, not guys that I had personally worked with. One was from another battalion. Uh, one was from my battalion, but different company. Um, we had some tankers. We had some intel guys, um, flight crew, crew okay. chief guys. Um, so kind of from a from a wide background, some of which had mil had combat experience. What what seemed to be the um, what got them in? What got these? What, what that's a pretty diverse group of prior service people and MOSs. So, what was it about them that why did you guys make the cut to the prep school? Could you tell what the denominator was for those prior service? People? You know, I think the denominator 
the largest denominators, I don't think there were a lot of prior service guys applying. Um, the age cutoff was very slim. Like you, you, you had to be, you couldn't have had more than like three, maybe four years in the military to go to West Point. It was a very young age cutoff to start West Point. Um, it's a kind of a niche program. I think it's like a hundred people a year can apply or have their applications go for very small, very niche. Most people are too old for it, too smart for it. Um, in the sense that they're like, why would I go to four years of West point when I could do ROTC and live a life? Um, mm. but yeah, I, I don't think there were a lot of people slinging out applications and we're like, ah, oh, like shaking their hand at the sky. Yeah. Why didn't I get in? <laughs> right, I, I think right, it was right. like, if you wanted in, you had a good record. You knew about the program enough to apply. Your chain of command supported you. You were you were good, and that was my experience. You could have opted out of going to West Point after the prep school, couldn't you have? Yes, but you didn't. But I didn't. Um, I that's even reading Shadow Strike. There's in the American Mercenary series the protagonist that follows my exact timeline. This is my first book. Mm-hmm. Um, there comes up the theme pointed out by a mentor figure, like you're too determined. Like you don't quit stuff even when you should like Mm -hmm. you. And that was my experience. I think I was like, so determined. I didn't like step back and be like, is this a good idea at all? It was like, I've made the decision and at any cost, I did consider quitting West point and going back to the army, um, a hundred percent many times. And decided to stay on the stay on the path because I wanted to be like an SF team leader. What was making you consider quitting? Were there specifics, specific instances, specific things, themes that kept coming back up that were like, I, I can't fucking deal with this. I need to bounce. Hypocrisy and injustice come to mind. So the system at West Point at the time I went there in no way reflected the combat army or the army at all. Um, at all, at all. And what they actively perpetrated ran, in fact, counter to that, where in the army, you look after your teammates first, your squad mates second, your platoon mates third, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's a loyalty, there's a very tight bond between everybody. Um, at West Point, the mentality was, you guys are all such special snowflakes. And they say this, they said this, like, it's like, you guys are the best of the best, the cream of the crop. If you didn't have what it takes, you wouldn't be here. Um, and then they have an honor system, which is a cadet may not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those that do, which sounds great in theory, but in practice. And I say this, having spent a semester on the honor committee at brigade level, which most of the people who wave the West point flag did not do. Um, when you see that from the inside, it's more often than not used as a system of personal retribution for an instructor doesn't like a cadet, a cadet doesn't like a cadet. A cadet had a romantic falling out with another cadet and is going to rat them out. So they actively encouraged snitching out your roommate for any number of um, not even honor, but regulations, violations with no face to face confrontation. Like we had in my incoming class, we had somebody in my company who was using like. Here's a blast in the past. Remember AOL instant messenger This is before text messages, (laughs) cell phones are big. He's instant messenger and we weren't supposed to use it. It's like, no, you're a freshman. You can't use it. Um, I knew somebody that used it and their roommate had to have looked over their shoulder, seen what they were doing, got up, left the room, right? And came back, sat down, like nothing happened. 
And then 10 minutes later, upperclassmen are knocking at the door to initiate a formal investigation and sworn statements. And Lee is absolutely insane. Um, Ratting out your roommate was an institutional celebration. Um, It ran counter to everything I'd encountered in the army and did so from top to bottom. Senior year, we had, I know a guy who had another cadet write a five page unsolicited memorandum about all the regulations and fractions this guy had not been caught for, jumped two levels of command, company and battalion to submit it to the brigade tactical officer who said, this guy's got some cojones and gave it like looked into it. So absolutely bonkers. Um, The face you're making right now is the correct face to be making upon hearing this information. Um, I could go on, but it was a cesspool and a rat ship in my experience. And the guiding light we had was um, there were a few combat veterans, like very few that had skipped the prep school and been able to go straight in because they had the academic chops. Um, But the big wave of combat vets was my class starting West Point in 2004. Um, So for class of 2008, they called us class of 0.08 and the combat vets spread cynicism and accurate observation like a superpower among everybody and a lot of the things that were fostered by the system um were given the healthy level of skepticism by cadets who hadn't gone to war because they were influenced they were looking at like hey you've been to war like this officer telling me this has not um and we were all like this is not the army like this is this is not the army. Don't listen to them. Um, and I knew because my brother told me, he was like, listen, man, when I went to West Point, I didn't know it was all bullshit. And by the time I figured it out, I was close enough to graduating. It didn't matter. He's like, you're going to know it's bullshit from the beginning. And he was right. What was your degree in? Uh, <laughs> business management. So I selected my degree on what was going to be the easiest thing possible with the least amount of time so I could spend as much time possible skydiving and base jumping. The two front runners were uh, human geography and business management. Human geography required a walk up like six flights of stairs, whereas business management was like on the first sub-level in the main academic hall. So I did management with the football team half a lacrosse team, probably two thirds of the hockey team. And yeah, all I was concerned about as far as class rank went was, can I branch infantry? Because it goes off your class rank. And I ended up getting the last infantry spot that didn't require you to sign an extra three-year commitment to get it. The guy who was the first one to have to sign, um, his name is Spencer. I know this because an infantry officer basic, a Dude named Spencer came up and looked at my name tag, looked at me and very angrily goes, you're fucking Casper. And I was like, yeah, uh, what, what can I do for you, man? Like, what's going on here? And he was like, I was the first ad so slot to get infantry. I had to sign extra three years. I was the first person to have to do that. Cause you took the last slot. I was like, I'm sorry, man. How did I tell you <laughs> what, um, wow. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's so funny hearing this. Uh, obviously, we're, you know, we have people on our board that are West Pointers, and I love them, and we're very close to a lot of people at West Point. But it's, uh, you know, as an enlisted guy, I 
I always joke that I'm consistently the lowest ranking person I know uh, in our board meetings. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Uh, there's even in the, the surrounding area. I mean, as you know, the surrounding area around West point um, where we are, you know, I'm glad people revere West point. I'm glad they like it. I'm glad they support the military and what have you. Um, but I'm constantly in my own mind. If sometimes it slips out, sometimes I actually verbally say it, but I'm like, you know, that's not the army, right? You know, that's not like how things always are. And I say that from a place of ignorance and prejudice because I don't necessarily know how it's not the army. I just know my impressions. And when I've been on there and I'm like, it's beautiful. It's awesome. It's a college campus. Um, but I'm like, uh, but hearing these specifics, that's, that is jaw dropping. Um, and interesting. And I guess my first question about it is how much did you, how much did you feel you were betraying your enlisted self? Was like, was there a part of you where you're like, Oh, I'm pulling the curtain back and Oh, this is why officers are officers. Oh, I get it. Like there's this kind of thinking. Was there any of that? Not, not too much. Um, for one thing, when I went to the prep school and like first logged into my like cadet candidate credential email, I had an email waiting for me the first time I logged in from the quote regiment mafia, which was the Rangers who were at West Point, the range regiment guys who were at West Point. Uh-huh. And they were like, Hey brother, like, sorry, you're here. Here's the deal. Like we, we run deep up here. Here's the list of everybody, what company they're in, where they served, when they served in Ranger regiment. Um, anything you need, like, let us know. So in my, you know, my platoon's parting guidance to me basically is like, give them hell up there. Um, so there was, you know, it was more a sense of like, you're representing Ranger regiment. So like, interesting, be the example rather than trying to undermine everything. I did undermine everything as actively as I could, but I also like, they had me as a freshman, you know, like running classes for the company on tactical casualty care on, you know, room clearing fill in the blank like they utilized me pretty well i didn't get fucked with by um i actually didn't wear like ribbons or badges because it was funnier to hear um first of all i don't care and second off it was hysterical and i encourage any prior service person especially if combat experience you made the mistake of going to west point take off all your badges and just keep your ears open and like listen to the way people talk to you because it is hysterical um you know, people, well, yeah, when you get out in the army, you're going to have to be this and air assault school, toughest 11 days of my life. And I was like, man, this is, um, it was comedy on a level that was like deeply enriching spiritually. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think for me, it was more about like trying to get through and identify the good people. Um, my main beef with, in, in, to be fair, I can only comment on West Point as I experienced it. Sure. I don't know if it's gotten better since then. I don't, I had seniors when I was a freshman tell me they had more fun their freshman year than their senior year because the landslide of regulations stacking up had gotten so extreme that like the place was going downhill is what they told me. Um, But I will tell you like on the army side, here's how little it matters where you went to school to get your degree or your your commission. Um, I was handpicked after my platoon leader time. I had a company commander, new company commander, newer handpick me to be his executive officer second command run all the supply books and everything else um i think he handpicked me based off my reputation as a platoon leader because we hadn't met he was like a hardcore west point rah rah like mm-hmm. guy 
I worked for that man for six months. And one day we were having lunch six months into my time as a, as a company executive officer. And he was telling me some story about West Point. And he was like, oh, yeah. And where, where did you go to school? And I was like, West Point. And he laughed at me and then said, seriously, where did you go to school? And it was simultaneously the biggest compliment I'd ever been issued unknowingly by another human being before or since. Um, but second to me, it was like, like, why, why does one commissioning source spend five times the amount of money generating a second lieutenant? You get into special force, you're working with other team leaders for a hot minute and have them rank ordered in terms of how good or bad you think they are and like what their competence level is, um, what their reputation is in combat before you ever have the conversation with them months later, like we're like before school doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So you might as yeah. well live it up. In my opinion, uh, do ROTC any, if there's any high schoolers listening to this ROTC is your ticket, man. Did you feel after all that time, uh, five years total, right? Cause prep school and then four years at, at yes. West point, did you feel your skills as a soldier had atrophied at all? I don't think they'd atrophied because my skills as a soldier, um, were minimal to begin with just by virtue of the time I'd spent. Like, yes, mm -hmm. I was in range regiment. Yes. I had, um, you know, a couple trips, but I was not, you know, spending nine hours in the range every day or any, you know, sure. it was like, I was okay. a private, right. It right. was, you spend a lot of time at the range, you do a lot of stuff, but there was nothing where I was, I don't think a liability to anybody. Um, I was, I was a private, yeah. um, so coming in on the officer side in terms of skills, I, if anything, I'd honed my skills, if not in terms of shooting, which had remained decent. Like I kept shooting throughout West Point as like a shooting team for a while and then shot a bit recreationally, which is not the officer's role ideally, but, um, they just said, okay, physically I'd gotten better, a lot better, way, way, way better physically. And then in terms of what would serve me later in combat was like just my time in adrenaline sports had mm -hmm. sharpened me a lot. Um, and that's one of the reasons I stayed at West Point was they have a skydiving team there. And I had started skydiving at the prep school was just every paycheck was getting incinerated at the drop zone. Um, so when I got on the skydiving team and you're looking at five figures worth of lift tickets and tunnel time and equipment and everything else to skydive almost every day, almost every day for me, like that adrenaline was like that is what made it worthwhile. And when that adrenaline faded, I got into base jumping, did that on the side. Um, and by the time I came out, I was no longer like waving an American flag, running off into the sunset singing Jody cadence, which I very much was when I came into the army, but that shit went out the window when I went to combat um, yeah. completely. And when I came back in, I approached getting back into combat the way I would approach an adrenaline sport. Mm. Like I'm, yeah. I'm in it for the rush. Like that's, that's why I'm going back. And as bad as my PTSD has been, it probably would have been way worse if I had been um, super patriotic that entire time. Like I can look back objectively and be like, I could have stepped off the hamster wheel at any time. I didn't have to commission into the infantry. I didn't have to, you know, slot myself to go to a unit that was about to do a year long trip. I could have gotten out of that and switched my orders to somewhere else. It's on like the readiness force standing by for that cycle. Um, I did not have to go apply for special forces, you know, when I did special yeah. force, I didn't have to 
volunteer for the most heinous shit my team could have possibly done, which they all wanted to do as well. Um, and we didn't have to push it as hard as we did, but I can look back at that. Like that was all a choice. And I went in with my eyes open. I'm coming out with my eyes open and I'll bear the fallout, the therapy, the whatever is required. Um, but I'm, I don't feel like misled. Was there any sense of FOMO of having missed out? Like now, holy shit, you're in West Point for five years. You thought those wars were going to end. You're going, yes. oh, God damn, everybody's still pushing out. Yeah. What was that like for you? Oh, so a couple things to temper that, like the people you're there with, like the other range regiment guys who got there before I did, they'd missed everything. And um, one of them in particular, a guy whose company did that combat jump when I was in airborne school, he was distributing, like they have to leave a copy of the New York Times of like a newspaper outside of every upper class, every cadet's door every day, because people still read newspapers apparently, but it's, it's tradition. So they keep doing it and just fuck the rainforest. Um, but he was like, picked up the stack of newspapers and saw his company had done a combat jump the night before. So you're dealing with that level of soul crushing despair in terms of like, wow, it's, it's not that bad. Um, and then we were hoping we would get out for one last deployment after we graduated. Hopefully we can catch the tail end of the war. Hopefully fingers crossed. Hopefully we can catch a deployment in 2009. Wow. Um, and I went into that 2009 deployment grateful I'd caught the tail end and I huh. came out of that year long deployment in 2010, knowing that this whole thing was a house of cards that was going to fall at the first possible opportunity. Um, and saying that like, this whole thing's fucked. And when I went back, it was for the adrenaline. When you, so when you went back, um, you're an infantry officer, did you go to ranger school right after Ibolic then? Yes. Yep. Okay. So you're in the pipeline doing a bunch of schools. You come out of ranger school and where did you have orders to? Uh, 82nd Airborne. Okay. So that was your deployment, your first deployment as yes. an officer. Yep. And who are you in charge of? Um, an infantry platoon. And okay. it was a phenomenal job. I've said this before. Everybody loves to glorify special forces um, or special operations in general and not without reason. The best job I ever had was a special forces team leader, but the second best job I ever had close second was infantry platoon leader um, in combat was time of my life. And in some ways, much, much, much harder than being a special forces team leader. Because special forces team leader, you've got your team of SF guys like, they are the most seasoned, saltiest. Yeah. Like if there's new guys, they get wrapped up in the fold, made part of the family very quickly. Um, and like, they're not going to let you fail. And in, you know, an infantry platoon, you're dealing with guys with you know, squad leaders have experience. Some of the team leaders have experience, but you're dealing with a lot of privates too at varying levels of um, capacity and competence and keeping that on the rails, moving in the, in the right direction um, was, was a lot harder for me than being an SF from a leadership perspective, hundred percent. What kind of leader were you? I was pretty chill. Like for me, I did not care about like the military hierarchy. Like I cared about like combat effectiveness as priorities. One, two, three. Um, the next thing after that is our elements reputation. 
because that affects like attracting, retaining the best talent um, and the missions we get. But it was just combat effectiveness. What's the job? Um, there were certainly times I let my ego get in the way. Um, as I think we all did over the course of a year long deployment, nobody's, nobody's perfect boy scout the whole time. Um, but yeah, I think I was, I think I did a pretty good job at the tactical level as a platoon leader and as a special forces team leader. I think my guys would say that I was good tactically. I would also say that I think that's where my potential for career progression ended. I don't think I would have done well at all. It's a strategic level going forward to like being a major and, mm-hmm. you know, moving on up the staff and command ranks. I think my greatest contributions were and would remain if I, even if I'd stayed in at the tactical level, like being on the ground. Where was that deployment, that year long deployment? Was that Afghanistan? Yes. Where, where'd you guys go? Uh, we were based out of Herat province. So that was all RC West that whole time. Um, so me and another infantry platoon got detached to like a field artillery element. So we were the only two infantry platoons and they used us accordingly. So we kind of got the, the prime pick of what's the hardest, what's the hardest thing to do. And that was where they, they filed our platoons. What kind the of downside mission? was it was, yeah. uh, it was, Oh, the mission is counterinsurgency. Now what the definition is of that is, you couldn't get any two officers to agree from platoon up to brigade level on how it should be implemented. Um, and I would, as a platoon leader, have various times where we were getting ready to punch out to our district and set everything up. You know, company commander wants you living among the people, handing out soccer balls. Battalion commander wants you HESCOs, like VBID threats. Um, and yeah, navigating that kind of taught me like, wow, this is fucked um as a second lieutenant the marching orders were figure it out conduct counterinsurgency that's the extent of the mission there wasn't even a mission statement it was just conduct counterinsurgency is what they would tell you and by the way we're firing out of a cannon you're going to be living with the afghans um security forces in this district and you're there for a year and go out conduct counterinsurgency and then the the tempo of how we progress things with patrols and going into increasingly sketchy areas with our Afghan partners was kind of scaled by us because there was very little guidance, very little support that could be offered other than logistically, you know, um, nothing I've said before, the most scared I've ever been in combat hands down was about to breach a door and go into a building after we tiptoed through a town that had recently fallen to Afghan security forces. And I was just like out there. We were separated by the vehicles, by like two kilometers of ground movement through this town. And I was just thinking like, if this goes bad, like nobody's coming to help us. Like I've got the rest of the guys in my platoon. Like that's it. Um, And it ended up being a dry hole. Everything ended up being Mm -hmm. fine, but I'll never forget that it wasn't, I've been into far more dangerous situations before and since but they were properly resourced. Like you have mm-hmm. a quick mm-hmm. response force standing by, you might have some air support, like some eyes in the sky, something. But I knew like, not only was there not a quick response element, but even if I had made contact at the second with my headquarters, like the guy on the other end of the microphone, like until the battalion commander made there was not going to have any idea what to do. Sure. Um, 
because it was, and that was the construct of the whole war. Is it's a field artillery unit, and suddenly you're there police slash state makers slash fill in the blank for everything else because nothing got done by anybody but the military you know um that whole thing about get military victory in iraq and the state department's going to come in that easy we all saw how that worked out it basically turned to like hey military figure the fuck out um but yeah nobody was nobody was there doing the jobs they were trained for the organization started for to include the infantry guys you know we were being used as like a weird combination of uh, military slash police slash civic leaders um, right. mentoring village leadership and everything else and trying to convince them why this all made perfect sense <laughs> and they should absolutely listen to America. What was it? What was the difference for you now being a platoon leader and, uh, you know, taking contact versus being a ranger private? Was that? Did you notice a difference? Did was did you respond yeah. well to the difference? Were you like, hey, yeah, good choice. I like this better. I like being able to have a little bit more say as to how we're going to execute this. Hey, it was a big change, and I liked it better. I liked being able in a gunfight to like be able to drop down next to a dude and be like, hey, what's up, brother? Like radiating that sense of calm because I had seen that from my platoon leadership when I was a private. I very much liked managing the fight being able to ideally pick and choose and then reacting when things don't go according to plan or the enemy chooses to start the engagement um i liked that it, it it did feel like a better fit 100 percent. since your eye was kind of tunnel visioned on going to special forces being the alpha did you enjoy interacting with the afghans did you enjoy you know, going to the local Shura and sitting down and having tea with people. Was there a lot of that that you're doing as a platoon leader with the 82nd where you're going, Hey, I want to work on my jungle diplomacy a little bit here. Um, were there, were there those opportunities? Did you have, did you respond well to that? Did you enjoy it? What was that like for you? Yeah, there were a lot of opportunities for that. And I approached it as like, wow, this is the best training I can possibly get for special forces. Like sure. their mission is to organize, train, and equip partner forces. We basically had a very SF-ish mission um, as an infantry platoon. So I, I didn't particularly enjoy the shuras and the chatting over tea and stuff, but it was, I had the deep appreciation, like this is one, my job and two, it's really helped me for where I want to be. So when I'm meeting with my Afghan counterpart, there were times he wants a, a two minute meeting, like level the bubbles. And I can tell he wants me out of his office because he has shit to do. And there are other times he wants to drink chai, smoke cigarettes, and watch Indian soap operas for four hours while we talk about women, America, whatever he feels like. Um, so I got a lot of really good experience in that regard. And I'll also say as a result of that mission, that heavy degree of autonomy we had, um, I really got a healthy respect for the structure of a special forces detachment. Because the guys with electrical wiring experience, the guys with construction experience, the guys who could set up the long range communications, mm-hmm. like all the, the medic, all the skills that were in extremely high demand, even from their experience um, as civilians in their prior careers. Um, I was just like, like an SF ODA has that mapped. Yeah. And it made 
perfect sense to me. I think everywhere I served before since, nothing made as much sense to me as SF. That was the closest personality fit. It was the closest to where I see the world. Um, it was just hand in glove. This was the most you had interacted with indigenous, not just forces, but indigenous people in these AOs, right? Now being yes, able to sit very down and limited, talk. Yeah. Very limited exposure in the invasion of Iraq. Um, and it was like pulling security on engineers at Haditha Dam while they did their thing. And I could talk to them a bit about you know, they were English speakers, highly educated. Um, to their credit, they treated me with, you know, intellectual respect, knowing this is like a dumb fucking 19-year-old with a gun has no idea what he's doing. And we had like really good conversations, like what was life like under Saddam and everything. But my mainly it was and then some in Afghanistan as well, but the vast, vast majority was that that time as a platoon leader, I was up to my neck in it. It was just local communications. At that time, 2008 in Herat, were you, I mean, there again, I'll ask, were you seeing Iranian influence being so close to the border? Yeah, I was there 2010 and yeah, a lot of Iranian influence. I mean, we, you've, I've looked at the crates of 107 rounds with, you know, ostensibly U.S. markings, like perfect English, everything produced in Iran and smuggled. Um, but for the, you know, so they were getting well-resourced from Iran, I'm sure, but um, everything we saw was local Taliban actors slash people who just didn't like America. I never never dealt with, never mixed it up with any Quds Force operatives. Yeah, Probably okay. better for that, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did you guys end up losing anybody in that deployment? No, and that was my, Yeah, that would have fucked me up. That was the biggest thing I had going for me. That's what kept me going, like civilian casualty and stuff. Like my job is to get these guys home. Like this mission is fucked. We are not going to turn things around here. So how can we accomplish the job we are assigned to do and bring everybody home? Um, now we've lost people to suicide since then. So I, I, you know, could take myself for a victory lap, and then it's like, oh hey, this team leader blew his head off. So that was my first, like, oh, it's not all sunshine and roses, like it's a big relief when you come off platoon command and you can finally like turn off your cell phone for the first time in a year plus, right. you know, because you're not on call 24 seven. Um, but yeah, the, the fallout from that later guys getting hit with post-traumatic stress guys killing themselves. Um, I brought them home, but not all of them made it home. Yeah. Did that make you, did that concern throughout that year-long deployment, did that make you a more aggressive leader, a more proactive leader, or did it make you more risk-averse, or did it affect you at all in your decision-making? It didn't make me more risk-averse, but I had the advantage of like when I went into my uh, special forces team, we had, these guys were seasoned um, we had like one 18 x-ray who was absolute stud, but no combat experience. But I was like, this guy's going to perform. Um, we had some guys, uh, some guys, the 82nd experience or experience and like other army units, other guys that like a ton of experience in SF, um, had come over really early. So these guys were absolutely pipe hitters. They absolutely wanted to get after it. I wanted to get after it, but my initial, like, you know, I went over early on Advon and on advanced party, and when my team got there and I sat them down to do their initial briefing, I was like, we're going to like a couple things. There's nothing here worth fighting for. Not what I thought I was going to say at any point after taking the oath. Um, 
nobody wants to be the last American killed in Afghanistan. Keep in mind, this is 2015. And that was still a thought, like things were shutting down so rapidly mm-hmm. in terms of like what they would accept for risk. Um, nobody wants to be the last American killed. And I said, we're going to push this right up to the limit of one of us getting killed and stop at that limit. But short of that, we're going to push this as hard as we can go. But it it wasn't like I was banging the war drum. Come on, guys. Like they were fucking ready. Their biggest limitation would have been me in terms of accepting risk. And I was full-fledged card-carrying adrenaline junkie at that point. Um, so we were able to get after it, but it was done by universal consent. Universal consent. What about with the 82nd? I'm assuming there wasn't universal consent with that. Correct. And how were you? Be- yeah. <laughs> how how were you at, at, at with risk aversion or, um, yeah, getting after it with them? We took reasonable precautions. We didn't push. Well, with few exceptions, we didn't push. We didn't push the grounds of we're assuming an insane amount of risk with few exceptions. Um, for the most part, it was like, Hey, this is the job. We've got these guys standing by here. This other element or platoon that could back us up. If this goes wrong, we've got the vehicles within sight here that could bring the big guns into the fight and we're going. Um, my platoon sergeant was tactically outstanding, very much on board. Um, we had a one squad leader who I would have, I told him, I was like, I would take you as my platoon sergeant today. Like tactically, mm-hmm. you are already well, you're there. And logistically, you're like one deployment away from being there. Mm. Um, I had another guy who was very good, very competent, and he was very pragmatic. He's ready to do whatever. And then I had one squad leader who was like, um, not good. Um, and you might notice I'm I'm missing a squad leader here. They stripped a squad off my platoon to be like the battalion commander's PSD slash convoy so we were operating with three squads. Um, so yeah, very interesting, very autonomous, but we took risks, but it was like the leadership's aligned. We're going to take reasonable precautions and here we go. And privates are just going to have to deal with it. After that deployment, um, did you deploy again as conventional infantry or did you now start the SF pipeline and start moving towards that? I did a, I, I did a year of garrison executive officer and then started the SF pipeline. Okay. Um, I guess <laughs> I don't want to breeze through the Q course, but I, I mean, I, I'm assuming it felt natural, good. And at this point there have been so much preparation. There weren't a whole lot of surprises for you through the Q. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. SF was home, and I will say the Q course in particular, Robin Sage, the officer training committee, the team leader detachment course, um, there's a detachment team leader course you do, was the best training I've ever gotten or can even conceive of the instructor professionalism, the amount they made you think outside the box, throwing crazy curveballs at you in tactical situations and training. Um there was nothing they could have done to prepare those guys to serve as special forces team leaders that they didn't do to excellence. That was my experience with the Q course. Mm. Absolutely unbelievable. Robin Sage, 
mind-blowing levels of complexity and forcing initiative upon the students. Um, absolutely top resource, top training talent. Um, I had the best experience I could have possibly had in the Q course. And in fact, in special forces. When you Not left- always the case, but that's what yeah, I Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, 100%. Uh, when you left the queue at that point, did they have you go right to Halo? Was that the thing back then, or or did you go no, to Halo so, later? No, so f- they didn't have free fall for everybody at that time. Okay, I got a Halo slot because I was the detachment, uh, or I was the class like leadership graduate um, for the officers, like an officer and NCO, and so I got a Halo slot and I gave it away because I was going to. I wanted to go to an SF battalion that was deploying immediately. Um, and that deployment was not even team command. Uh, this is pre-team leader time, but they were like, we have a an officer billet where Canadian soft was training at uh, Camp Moorhead, the Afghan Special Operations mm-hmm. Schoolhouse, like their Q course, their Ranger mm-hmm. indoctrination program. Um, and Canadian Special Operations, they're running it with a full detachment my special forces group was going to commit a full ODA to that the next deployment. So we just, they just had to bridge the gap um, before a full team could get. So they had a former team sergeant is basically a split team. So there is mm-hmm. Bravo, Charlie Delta echo. They had a former team sergeant and they needed an officer to lead this and advise the Afghan special operations schoolhouse commander is like the senior mm-hmm. officer counterpart. Um, so I joined those guys, went over and then did like four months or six months um, at that schoolhouse. Um, and I did that just on the possibility of combat, which we didn't end up getting in any ground combat. Sure. But that was goodbye, Halo. Like, let's go. Yep. yep. Um, but it ended up being an incredible experience. And it was basically like free ODA experience from a split team perspective before my team leader clock started on an actual team. And you were third group, right? Yes. Um, How much say did you have in which group you get assigned to? In my case, I had all the say, um, not in a good way. So they assigned me to fifth group when I came out of selection, but I wanted to go to third group to stay at Bragg. I wanted to give my wife some stability. Um, So I volunteered three extra years in the army to get Fort Bragg out of West Point and then I plan on doing SF Q courses at Bragg. And then I plan on going to third group. Uh, so, but after selection, they assigned me to fifth group. So I rectified that um, using, okay, so army human resources is a punchline. So I'm using this in the non-punchline way, the army human resources in the sense of who do you know that knows the guy that can pick right. up the phone and what does he want? And what he ended up wanting was a few bottles of scotch, a few hundred rounds of handgun ammo. I gladly provided it. He picked up the phone with me in his office and he was like, Hey, uh, Casper, this is the last four, blah, blah, blah. He's assigned a fifth group. And she's like, mm-hmm. and he's like, he's third group now. She's like, got it. And then he's like, hung up the phone. He's like, you'll get the email in a few weeks. A few weeks later, I got an email. Like wow. you've been assigned your orders have changed official orders. Secretary of the army declares. Uh, so went to the Q course, the third grouper graduated with a third group flash on my beret. And then we went to DC for two weeks, the team leaders, incoming team leaders, and then guys who were about to step up to be team sergeants do detachment leader course 
Um, and also warrant officers about takeover team. You go to DC, you do some interagency stuff. You get some broader perspective, a lot of intelligence briefs. Um, great course. Um, so I'm here having fun in DC with my guys. And um, they cut us loose. Like, oh, if you're going to the cadre, like cuts us loose for the day. Like have fun, they go out drinking, whatever. And oh yeah, if your third group stay here, it was me and a few other guys. And they're like, you guys are all reassigned to fifth group. And I'm like, uh, what? Like, we'd already graduated, like third group orders, like made preparation for family. My wife had already, like, she'd made some business moves under the pretense that we were staying. She'd made moves with her career. So I was like, holy shit. Um, so I went back to Army, quote, human resources, which is the flow chart of, do you know a general? No, keep going. Who do you know? Do you know anyone at HRC who works at human resource man? No. Next step in the flow chart. Do you know somebody who knows somebody who works at Army Human Resources? His answer was yes. I called that guy in feverish panic. His West Point roommate was at West Point or at Human Resources Command. Um, it was also this really cool gangster dude. Um, and he made the switch and my order stayed. And I was the only one to go to third group out of my graduating class for officers. You know, I, I really shouldn't have just breezed past the fact that you got married during this time. Um, the, uh, let's, I, I, don't, I, I feel like I'm just going to give it short shrift, but let me just ask the basic questions. Is this somebody you've know, you known for a long time? How did you meet her? I met her. <laughs> this was a uh, West Point guy's sister that I met senior year. Um, so West Point did so, pay off. West Point did pay off. I was able to, <laughs> yeah. was able to marry out of my league. Um, but yeah, so we got married. I, in, I literally did signed up like at the cure course, like signed in, they cut us loose from world day weekend and we got married that weekend. Um, like planned it that way, like holiday weekend, we'll do it. And when people uncomfortable dinner conversations when they're like, Oh yeah, where was your all's honeymoon? She's like the Q course. That was our honeymoon. Um, and then it wasn't until I'd come back from that first Afghanistan trip at Camp Moorhead that we actually like went on a honeymoon. Yeah. Um, very was, understanding woman, Chris. Yeah. I, 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 I don't doubt it. And reading, reading the books, I, there was, mm, yeah, I could, I could relate to some, mm happy wife, happy life moments in, in, in mm -hmm. some of your writing. I was like, Oh yeah, you could, that, couldn't that's, you? that's, that's, that strikes a chord. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was like, and, and it strikes a chord, not so much. I mean, yes for me, but also I was like, Oh yeah, it takes one to know one. Like you, you uh, I, th I think you captured it very well. And I liked the recurring nature of that, um, which seems to be true to form. Um, thank you. How was she, uh, holding up now with the op tempo? Now that you're brag, you're a third group and you're pushing, you push out to Moorhead, you're back, but you're going to be pushing out again. I mean, she kind of knew who she'd married, right? But how was that holding up for you? She hated the army, wanted nothing to do with it. Um, I had basically, I bridged the gap by making her promises like I need to do SF team time. That's a finite amount of time I can do it. You support me the rest of team time and I will get out of the army. I'll move wherever you want. And you're running the ship thereafter. Cause I wanted to be an author by then. I was like, I could write from anywhere. It's on you. She said, okay. <clears throat> so we, there was never any like misunderstanding. Like, why are you still doing this? It was like the, the, okay. the clock is running and yep. we're getting to this date. So that's, that's what it was. 
Um, let's not gloss over that either, because you did talk about that up front. Um, your writing had now progressed from private journaling to more stuff, or was it still kind of journaling that you were doing on a regular basis and on deployments? No, we did progress. So I was at West Point when I figured out I could get adrenaline from writing fiction, conceived of the David Rivers character. Um, <clears throat> I didn't have like a real book manuscript until like three years later, like 2010, like just writing part-time, trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a West Point instructor who's like very influential, um, not a combat vet. He was an air defense artillery guy, like chain smoker, super cynical math instructor. Um, so very unlikely that we would become BFFs. Um, and he was, I was in his math class. We, our humor meshed well together, but that was it. And then I was actually out drinking in uh, Highland Falls, New York, um, just one night off or a weekend or whatever. And he was like at the bar and came over to us. And it was a bunch of prior service guys that like wore the ribbons and shit. And then he was like, oh, you guys drink? And they're like, oh, yeah, we're all, you know, we're all 21. He's like, he looked at me. He's like, but you're not. And uh, they were like, Casper's 21. What are you talking about? And he's like, what are you talking about? And they're like, Casper came out of Ranger Bat. And he was like, we're going to talk on Monday. And like, exit the stage, right? And then like, called me to his office. We started shooting the shit. And um, ended up getting really along really well. But we always shared book recommendations. Like very besought eye. And like, what's a good story? What's good? historical stuff uh to read so i in when i was in afghanistan 2010 two things happened um i always planned on like this is before my wife and i had like gotten engaged so at the time i was like i'm gonna do 20 years i'm gonna stay in it's a pension why would you give up on a pension right um so two things happened during that trip one i um they pulled me off my platoon to let a new guy take it like a month or two from the finish line which is something that irks me that is done frequently in the army. Um, pulled me off of platoon. So they sent me to a staff job at Kandahar. Um, so I got to see the war from a higher perspective. And I was like, wow, this is totally twisted metrics. And, you know, somebody becomes a triple amputee. That's one bullet point on one slide. And if somebody builds a well in a village, it's five slides long. Like it was just like the media right. does is right. how they ran it. Like the good news stories get all the fanfare. And oh yeah, on the side, uh, you know, we lost X, Y, Z. Um, but that doesn't matter because free democratic Afghanistan, but it was during my, that was my first exposure to staff. And that's when I realized like, I can't do staff. Huh. I planned on like, well, by the time I that's that team, the command and staff, I can get through staff times. So Those have a few years left. And once I actually did staff, I was like, not worth it. Not worth my life. The second thing that happened is my battalion commander, who was one of the godlike human beings that you would spend your entire life trying to be half of what he is and never come close he got fired in a highly political scandal by a brigade commander who was an overweight like massively overweight universally hated universally detested um piece of shit and so those two things like i can't do staff i can't like this guy's all i'd ever aspire to be knowing i'd never come close it'd still be worth to pursue and it was like when that guy got fired that disillusioned me in the army pretty completely. So it's like, 
But in that time, I also emailed that West Point professor and was like, hey, uh, do you want to, I got to found a good debut novel. Like, do you want to check it out? And he responded, not, not knowing that I wrote at all, never talked to him about it. He replied, send me your book, Jason. So he, like, wow. when he got that email, like he wow. knew, like, this cat's been writing. So he read that book in 2010, uh, was the only one to read it, and emailed me back and was like, you need to get the fuck out of the army, because if you're producing wow. this while you're in, you'll be a, a factory, like, you'll be a machine if you could do it full time. He's like, get out of the army or write full time or publish it under a pen name or like whatever you got to do. But like, I know a good story like this is fucking solid. And his judgment is also notable because the the book at that time followed the storyline of the first book in the American Mercenary Series that does right now. Uh -huh. Some parts are intact, but I had to rewrite things from scratch. The manuscript in 2010 was dog shit, but he recognized like the threads of the story and knew that I've been doing it part time. And that's when I was like, okay, I can do this. So combined with, I can't do staff. They're firing the gods around here. Yeah, um, yeah. That's when I was like, I will get out of the, I'll do SF and I'll get out of the army and I'll write, I'll be an author. So, so many things pop for me when you say that the biggest thing or the first thing I should say is that with that, with a, maybe not a foot out the door, but a foot inching across the threshold pretty well, you went through the queue. Yeah. That let me rephrase what I asked before about the Q course and like, hey, hey we're kind of set up for success. That's probably pretty run of the mill. Did you notice at any points that your interest, your focus, your determination had changed at all because mentally you were going, this is the last hurrah and I'm, I'm, and I'm, I am disillusioned. And I, and I also have another thing that I want to be doing like that. That to me seems like that would erode a lot of resilience going through something like the queue. It actually contributed to resilience because I knew it was my last hurrah and I was going balls to the wall. And when I got to my team, I knew I had no political considerations for like my career. Huh. Um, so all I had to do was serve my team and do it potentially at my own expense when possible. Um, so if there was any bad blood with the company commander, I could, that would be on me. Um, I could follow my sword at any moment if I needed to defend one of my guys. It was actually very empowering. Wow. Not having to be concerned with how will this affect future jobs. Um, nobody else knew I was getting out, but I knew. And that informed my decision-making matrix okay. in, a, in a positive way, as it turned out. Wow, that's incredible. Um, almost as incredible as writing an entire book, which, okay, it needed to be rewritten later on, but so be it. Uh, the fact that you wrote an entire book, did you start it on deployment or had this just been, did you take the germ of what you've been working on since West Point and already have a lot of stuff built out by the time you actually completed the manuscript? So I started it, yeah, 2007 at West Point. I finished it on that deployment to Afghanistan. Like our lunch breaks in the platoon tent, it's not unusual to see the platoon leader like hacking away the laptop and I would be working on it um, whenever job responsibilities didn't dictate that I do otherwise. Um, and then as soon as I finished it in 2010, I sent it to that yeah. West Point professor. Were you protective about it? Was it the kind of thing if somebody's walking up to your laptop, you start like closing the 
Hey, hey, no, I'm good. Hey, what's going on? All right, cool. And then they leave and you open it back up or was it, or were you like open about it? If people asked or looked no, at I was, children? I was very protective about it. Nobody knew. And that was because when I was there for platoon leader time in Afghanistan, I had to start my paperwork for special forces, um, including my bio and for hobbies, I wrote like writing novels and I sent that to a guy I know's special operations community. And I was like, Hey, can you look this over before I submit and tell me what I need to tweak? And he came back. He's like, drop the novels. Don't ever tell anybody you write. This community is very like memoir sensitive. Um, and it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your chance of getting in. And it's going to hurt what, how people look at you. If they think you're trying to yeah. farm out a memoir from this experience um, he ended up being very right. And in the SF community writ large, it's quiet professionals, right. um, which means like you don't fucking talk about it. Like they hammer into you from day one of the Q course. Like you show people what you're doing to include your partner force. You never point to credentials. You never say like, oh, I did this back then. It's not a factor. You show them by your actions. Everything you do is how you establish credibility they hammer that into you. It made perfect sense to me. I tried to live by that. And then when I got out and tried to make it as an author, I was like, man, I, I wish I had more friends that were SEALs because they've got the market locked down for huh. books, film deals, Hollywood connections. Um, whereas SF is just, it's antithema to them yeah. to be in the spotlight, to point to your deployments and stuff like that. Like organizationally, it's very taboo. Yeah. Did any of that factor into your decision to write fiction as opposed to doing the no shit there I was memoir? I like fiction because I can control it to include mm -hmm. keeping emotional distance. So I've been doing self-paced therapy since 2007 from writing. Um, from the memoir perspective, and I have no issues being open and vulnerable. And in fact, the most meaningful feedback I get from readers is the people with issues, childhood abuse, first responders of trauma. Like that's what I feed off of when they reach out to me and they connected with it and it made them feel seen. Like that's who I'm writing for at my core is about people with struggles, uh, for people with struggles. Um, so in terms of why I'm not writing a memoir, now that I'm an author, now that I'm continuing this process, now that I can crank out books, um, I've, I'm not that interesting that my memoir would be anywhere close to what I can come up with in fiction, like not even close. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not that it wouldn't be potentially a good, warm story, but I, I don't rate my personal military experiences. Um, is needing a book, if that makes sense. I could put together all the stories of my team and the stories they had from their previous deployments and make a killer book, um, which I'd never do because that's shit relayed in confidence. Um, but the best way I can relay those archetypal truths of combat and living with yourself before, during, and after is through fiction. It's a more powerful means to convey the truth for yep. me than yep. trying to trying to make a chronological narrative of anything. Yep. That, that to me is very fair. I would 100% disagree that your life is not interesting enough to warrant a book, but I am very, I am very open 
to you saying, yeah, I, I can tell more truth through fiction that I can, I, that makes that tracks. I, I can believe that. Um, can we just talk about the origins of David Rivers? I mean, obviously this started, what was, what was literally the first fiction, proper fiction thing you ever wrote? The first pen to paper, this is not me, but I'm writing about somebody else. Was it David Rivers? I had a semester of creative writing in high school, if that counts. Um, okay. West Point literature class, I got to write one short story and one poem, which is the extent of them valuing creativity at West Point. That was like, that's literally the only creative thought required of me the entire time. Um, David Rivers is the first real creation. And it's, I had no idea what I was doing. And so I modeled them after me. Like if you open sure. American Mercenary Book One, it's my first book, greatest enemy. It's like a depressed, suicidal West Point cadet self-medicating through alcohol and base jumps, you know? Um, and then I made his, so identical background, but made paths diverge where he's medically non-commissionable, um, goes down a very dark road and ends up crossing paths with a team of mercenaries operating on behalf of the transnational criminal syndicate. And he becomes like this mercenary in the underworld starting as the new guy. And then that those six books arc him to a, a leadership position. So it was that whole series was like my metaphor for like transition issues. And I also roped in a bunch of like, what it is like to become a leader and realizing that you're leading men that are better than you in every meaningful way. And how do you do that with humility and pragmatism to enable them rather than hold them back? Um, like, how can you be an asset to those men? How to approach that? Um, so that that whole series kind of became like, that was very pure therapy. Um, events were fictional in terms of like what the character's going through, mm -hmm. how he's coping with things, expanding his worldview. That kind of follows my track to the military pretty succinctly. Because it was starting with such a heavy therapeutic bent, when you had to go back and rewrite, was it all structure that you had to rewrite? Did the character really not change, but the structure had to get tightened up? Correct. Structure and prose. Um, okay. Story events in sequence to create a compelling story. And even then, I pretty much failed at the first one. Um, I mean, failed in the sense that it wasn't like commercially successful. It wasn't at first. Once I started doing the marketing things and the advertising, mm -hmm. um, it became commercially successful enough for me to build a series off it and build a career off it with that as a foundation. Um, but if like that book is a case study and what not to do as an author. <laughs> it doesn't follow a normal story progression. It does not create an empathetic protagonist. It forces the reader into the darkest depths of the human psyche. Um, but it ended up working out well for me because like the people that picked up at that series, like they read everything else I've ever written or will ever write. Like if it resonates with them, um, it's polarizing. I get so many one-star reviews. Um, but I also find the right readers. And when it, it hits that audience, it connects with, they've followed me till the end of time. Like I love them for they They're incredibly supportive. Um, and that's, what's enabled me to like, kind of like branch out and learn more, like develop myself in terms of a, a as a storyteller. If you've gone back and looked at your first book at the first David Rivers book, Mm -hmm. Are there parts of it that you do wince at? Are there parts where you go, God, I'm so much better than that now, or I wish I would have said this like this? Or generally are you like, no, that I no, uh, I'm I'm there's no asshole puckering, wincing moments throughout this for me. I can see where I might have gotten better, but 
I'm good. Like I, there, there's nothing that, that, that I have, uh, I don't know any regret or regrets too strong a word. I don't mean that, but just the nature, the natural learning curve of a writer putting pen to paper where you're just like, ah, fuck, I really should have said it like this or ah, I, this, there's another level that I should have captured here. Is there any of that for you going back and looking at what you initially wrote? I recently reread that entire series for the first time since writing it. And for the first book in particular, I was just struck by how raw it was, Mm. how absolutely brutally emotionally raw. And like that was cutting my veins open and bleeding on the page in every possible way. Um, The point that people who knew me after they read that they were like, my God, man, I'm so sorry. I had no idea you were in such a dark place. Like, like, it's fine. It's fine. I I compartmentalized everything, you know, but um, I was shocked reading the first book. And then less so with the rest of the series, but still that anybody followed me there, that anybody followed me that dark mm. for that long. Uh, what would ultimately be a redemption arc for the character. So I could tell as new writer, like finding his way, but the, the prose, the emotion, the story events as they occur are solid in my opinion mm-hmm. um, to do it differently, to do it quote better would require like reshaping the whole story to form, to follow a more conventional story progression arc, um, which would totally change the book. Mm -hmm. So it remains something that's like so pure and so raw. Like I don't like reading fiction. So it was not done like trying to emulate anything. And it was done breaking a lot of rules that I didn't know I was breaking. And I'm surprised anybody followed me there that I built a career off it, but I did. And now the readers that I have that followed me through that are like, the right readers. Right. When that manuscript was finished, how long did it take for you to find a publisher? Oh, zero time. I went, I published independently. So I, I wondered about that. Okay. I, I can't, I couldn't remember what the first one. So initially you did. And then was it based off that, that you started to get more traction, start to get more entrenched? Like what was the, the what was the business progression for you as a writer? Because Writing commercial fiction the way you do, I mean, for those listening that aren't aware, I mean, that that's a proper business. I mean, you're not sitting there, you know, in some sort of, you know, masturbatory uh, creative hothouse sitting there and going, oh, five years, I'll get, put out my next novel. Like, you've, you, you, there is a commercial machine that you are generating, and that's an impressive feat. It's a one that I think most writers are terrified of at least or maybe i am maybe <laughs> let me let me say that let me not project on other people but i mean for you to do that that's why i start off by saying congratulations because you've built multiple ecosystems of of fiction and that's not an easy thing to do so when did that really what was the the business progression of of finding representation finding publishers finding um a commercial the basis of what could be a commercial success yeah, I mean, terrifying is a good word for it. I remember waking up in like cold sweats at two in the morning before publishing that book. Like, oh my God, what if it gets all one star reviews and I'm burned? Yeah. Because I did, I put my face on it. I put my name on it, like no pen name. I was trying to burn every bridge and like force myself into a corner where I couldn't back out and pretend mm-hmm. it never happened. Um, so I forced myself, I was like, I'm publishing this the day I go on terminally, the day I take off my uniform for the last time and I'm hitting publish on it, self publish on Amazon. Um, and putting it out there. I didn't seek publishers. I didn't want anybody messing with it. Um, 
now I know they nobody would have touched that with a 10 foot pole and for good reason. Um, at least until I proved them wrong that I that it would would, would work. Um, but I basically published that book, did nothing but write the second for about eight months, published self-published the second, started the third, and then hit the very unenviable point where my wife was like, Hey, like, you know, I told you I had to spend I wanted you doing at least six months of just writing after, but like, you know time went by, we like moved, she's trying to get started a job, we're getting like the kids settled, like new town and everything. And like a year had gone by and I wasn't making any money. And she was kind of like, I, if I'm going to put subtitles under my wife is she's talking to me compassionately and beautifully uh, with her regal air, the subtitles were like, maybe you get a fucking job, dot, dot, dot. And I was like, okay, maybe I should get a job. And then I immediately like, cold called all these authors. I emailed every author in my genre that I could. and was like, Hey, like, what the fuck do I do? How do I get this to sell? Um, my wife's threatened me with like, I'm, I'm looking at the barrel of a day job here. Um, and the light in the darkness that reached down and responded to those emails. Some of those, some of them respond like very good advice. Um, some people never responded. And then notably, once I started selling and in some cases outselling them, suddenly reached out to, Hey, just wanted to connect, like, love what you're doing. Like, I know you got that first email, you know, so I'm cordial with them, but like some of the people who respond are like my friends to this day, but the light in the darkness was a guy called Andrew Watts. So he was all over the bestseller list at the time, uh, Navy pilot who'd gotten out and uh serve some t- work some time at Procter and Gamble so like the best marketing mm. training mm. on the planet literally um and did that in a professional capacity so that's why he was a successful indie author and he responded to the email and was like love to help let's set up a call and on the call he was like all right man given the quality and content of your reviews your sales should be way higher way higher so I need you to talk me through everything you're doing for marketing and for specifically advertising, what types of ads, what bids, who are your comp authors? And I was like, bro, like, I'll stop you right there. Like, I don't do anything but write. Like, I just write. I've never run an ad. I've never done any marketing. And he was like, Jesus, stop what you're doing. Learn Amazon ads. Here's the resources. Start running these ads. Come to me for feedback on your bids and blah, 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 blah. Change your cover. Go you know, shadowy thriller protagonist facing away, you know, like change your cover to like a conventional cover. Like um, we need to change your book blurb to be more in line with like thriller reader expectations. Um, And then we'll, once we get your sales off the ground, we'll start setting up cross promotion, like really took me under his wing on a phone call. Um, So I did all of that. I was desperate at everything he said. And suddenly it started selling. And suddenly it became successful and suddenly I could build a series and had like the financial time and space. And then I was doing well. Um, but I kept doing indie and he was advising me on ads as were some other authors and whatnot. But what ended up happening, my break into publishing, quote unquote, and I wish I had a better answer for authors who are listening to this and trying to find a publisher. But it was Andrew Watts ended up starting a publishing company mm. called Seven River Publishing. Um And, you know, he would bounce ideas off me all the time and he knew he could do it by then because he told me everything to do. And I went from, you're going to have to get a job selling cars to, Hey, when's the next book coming out? Cause this is like financially it's working. Yeah. Um, Not from a confident place, but we're getting traction. Um, 
So he started a company and had a small stable of authors at the time. I just hit the breaking point where ads were getting more and more complicated. I just wanted to write. I was like, I'm never going to be a marketer. I'm never going to be a salesman or promoter or an advertiser. Like I just, but I can write like, this is my thing. And I want to spend all my focus on this. Um, So I just called him one day and I was like, how about I give you everything I've written and everything I ever will write. And you publish it as one of your authors. And by then I had a readership. By then it was financially uh, viable. So he, and in fact, everything I've been doing for cover design and story blurbs, synopsis and everything on the book description since then had been done at his side, like under his mentorship. Wow. Um, and he, I signed a contract. He took all my books and had been promoting them far better than I ever did. And that's freed me up to just create wow. to where the only limiting factor now is myself. And that said, you do churn out. I mean, you, re- you reading your one-star reviews and commenting on them is fucking great, though. I mean, those are pretty inspired, organic ads that you churn out. So it feels like you're having fun doing what you're doing now, too. Yeah, it's absolutely fun. I love my job. Wouldn't want to trade it for anything in the world. Like, this is where I need to be. This is home. You, I, I, I guess there's no way to say this except to say you realize that you, you are part of you, um, you're part of that military, um, you're part of that group of writers with military backgrounds that I think are a real threat, and maybe th- threat is too antagonistic or belligerent a term, but you're a threat. I feel like in com- in the commercial fiction space because so much of commercial fiction is about spies um you know war commandos mercenaries stuff like this and suddenly this wave of writers like you and jack carr whatever are coming along with experience in those arenas that's a hard thing i think for a lot of uh, to me as a somebody doesn't write commercial fiction and is has no skin in the game I look at that and I go, if I was a, co- a commercial fiction writer with no military background, I would be scared shitless of guys like you just because of the verisimilitude, um, the way that David Rivers does, um, uh, you know, comms. It's like there's, there's going to be a verisimilitude and dialogue that other people are going to have a hard time um, matching. Is that, am I speculating or is there any bit of that that's grounded? Do you get negative feedback from people in the industry that, that is probably fear driven? Or do you get, have you gotten responses where like, man, I like you so much more than insert the name of great commercial fiction writer here because shit, I really feel like I'm there and I feel like I, I, you know, I'm hearing this from somebody that really has a no shit there I was attitude. Is there any of that or, or am I just completely speculating on this and off base? So I do get that correspondence um, quite frequently, which, but that's not a good indicator because the people who are emailing me generally are the ones who like, love the books mm-hmm. um, or find them preferable just due to individual preferences. Um, however, I don't think commercial fiction is worried about us at all. And I don't like you're speaking for, as a vet. Um, what percentage of the population? What are we like? 2%? Yeah, right. Right. Sure. So the, most readers, the vast overwhelming majority don't know the difference. And in fact, a very real thing that I've talked with other authors about in a variety of genres, and this is a thing, 
um, in the author space is the more accurately you represent something, the more you go out of your way to research and talk to people who've worked in that space, done things a certain way, and you get those details in, the more blowback you get from negative reviewers saying that's not how it works because they're conditioned by decades of books of people who weren't a veteran, didn't work in the CIA, whatever the case may be. um, And you get, you know, Jimmy Jang 1527 at on AOL reviews, like, that's a perceptive senators guy, though. That, but don't get me wrong. That's a perceptive dude. Yeah. This isn't how it works. Senators don't run CIA operations. Like, well, in the book, it's the chairman of the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence. And by the way, that character exists because a motherfucker who is in this space and has been on the ops end floor when this happens, that this is exactly how the shit goes down. And when I relay that, I get one stars. Um, I've had readers with no military or police experience email, like, questioning tactical stuff. Because they're used to reading books that aren't written by vets. So I don't think we're a threat in any way to those publishers. And my proof of that, as best as I can speak to it, is that none of them have ever reached out to me and be like, hey, man, do you want to like bring your books in our house? Like we can, Mm. even knowing that I had a readership, Mm. like you never hear from those guys. It's a very big delineation between the big four publishers and their imprints, which dominate the uh, brick and mortar distribution. Their sales are predominantly... um, hardcovers their model is one book a year they start doing marketing for it six months out like they've got a cycle down that's how they're profitable um on the then you have the independent authors that are very savvy and agile with um advertising and you know crafting series off what's trending at the time and then in between those two you have the smaller upstart publishers like my publisher where that's the happy spot for me because I don't have to mess with the indie side of the business house, which I was miserable at, by the way. Yeah. Terrible at math, terrible at ads. Huh. And um, I also don't have anyone trying to limit what I'm doing or give me left and right limits. Or they're like, you have a readership, it's selling, go. You want to start a new series? Cool. Here's how we can position it. Uh, here's how we can like sell it. But I get to do creatively whatever I want. Um sometimes to a fault, you know, I've, um, some of the stuff I write is not commercially like viable because the smart call is to have one hero. You write him for 20 books. He's super patriotic. There's no moral gray area. He's such a badass. Um, and I like to showcase that like vulnerability. I like to showcase the trauma. Um, I like writing the team dynamics and shadow strike. So you have one first person POV for my main character. You have four third person POV. So now, is an author, I can take the gunfights, the tactical engagements, the car chase, the three-dimensional chess showing um, showing the battle space and um, expressing so much nuance in the situations through that structure, but that's not what's commercially viable. Um, and even with my Spider Heist series, it's a great series. Like the books are solid. People love them, but you yeah. can't really advertise to it because there's not a, hey, love... Tom Clancy, try Jason Casper, because there's nobody oh. writing heist books in series. It's all over the film space, but nobody is writing heist books in series. Every once in a while, they'll do like one book that's heist themed, but there's no author comparison where you can find new readers. It's really hard to do. That that seems strange because I, I want to talk about the heist series because, um, I mean, obviously you've been a lot of things. Ranger, Green Beret, West Point graduate, blah, 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 and all this stuff. You have 
never been a female Highline burglar. That you know <laughs> it's of. like that I know of. That's true. We didn't and, cover everything. You're trying to didn't, pitch we didn't cover now. everything. That is true. And I don't want to limit your future prospects. I mean, you know, you. Who, knows, who knows what the future holds. That said, um, but between that, between her dark silence, um, yeah, you don't see Tom Clancy writing for uh, writing uh, female protagonists very often. Your flexibility and versatility to write those stories, I think, is really interesting and to use a pun novel what was the challenge for you you like that yeah i did um, that's two thumbs up right there <laughs> thanks uh talk about the challenges of writing from a female point of view and i know yes, it was written in the would... third person but but that said what, what what was it like to actually get into that headspace there's less issues than you would think um so i can use the case in point of uh, her dark silence I specific, I was writing on some issues that were like very close to home, like too emotionally close to home for me to remain objective about. Um, so I made the decision to make it a female. It fixed all my issues and allowed me to maintain that emotional distance. Um, and I later heard from a female reader who's like read all my stuff and she's like, you captured the female psyche like so well you how did you get inside a woman's head how did wow. you do this is that was like that was perfect like it was like it was written by a woman blah 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 and the truth is all i did was flip it to a female and that's it other than that i used all the insecurities fears vulnerabilities that i have right like what are your worst mm. fears like spouse infidelity losing a child whatever the case may be I literally just pivoted it to a female character, took all the issues that would be important to me and started talking about it from a female perspective. Um, and at the end of the day, it's just human issues. It's not male or female. So I'm sure there's some nuances I couldn't grasp on what it's like to be like sexually objectified by men your entire life um, right. to pick one of many, but for the purposes of writing a psychological thriller or a heist thriller um, and what gets screen time in that, what elements are at, uh, exemplified in that it's just a matter of highlighting the human issues through that lens and that was it so let's talk about the difference between david rivers and blair morgan and you know all the other stories that you told and staying away from that the fact that you've pivoted so hard from as you said that template of sticking with one protagonist and just doing jack reacher for your entire career um not that that's what he did but anyway that said um, why do you write? I mean, you talked about the adrenaline rush, but why shift? Did you get, did you get bored with one subject matter? Did you want to, what did you want to explore that you couldn't have? Why jump off what was, what's been such a successful train and have these other, uh, aspects of the spider web that you choose to flesh out and explore. So all those decisions are done. Um, is part of my career progression. It's done to develop myself as an artist. Um, it's like the military, you're gonna be put in this job and then you do it for that long, you do this next job at this higher level to gain this experience necessary for that job, right? Um, like an infantry platoon could run without a platoon leader, a platoon sergeant could do it, but you can't have an infantry company commander with no platoon leader experience. So mm -hmm. without an army HRC, not in quotes, uh, career timeline, I'm looking at how to progress myself as aggressively and violently as an artist as I can. So it started out wherever I could, which what I could do was 
first person on a protagonist that was exactly like me in doing what I would do in those situations. Um, I wanted to step outside of that. So I needed to do third person. I needed to write different subgenre in the thriller space. So heist thriller instead and put a cherry on top. I wrote a female. Um, then when I went to shadow strike, I did first person protagonist, third person for everybody else. Um, so it's, it's for me, it's all been about pushing my comfort zone and expanding my artistic capability in the hopes of getting somewhere like the next series I have planned is going to require 20 books experience minimum on top of the personal experience and being able to work from that foundation of all these different writing modalities, subgenres, themes, topics, subplots. Um, and I'm trying to get myself there and I'm just not good enough. But from early on, I made the decision to try to like build my career and push myself artistically as far as I can go. So by the time I bite off on that, I'll have like 21 books. I'll be like, I've wrapped up shadow strike series and then I'm going to like force myself into it. Cause there's no more development I can get before that. Towards what end? Let me, let me I can't think of a better way to say it. What do you want this all to look like at the end? It, and I'm saying that, like, do you see, a, if you were to get the terminal list, if you were to get a TV show, Amazon was to come along and say, hey, we'll film this, or to get a movie out of it, does that scratch an itch? Does that tick a box? Does that, does that provide a, a great conclusion or a great full circle for one aspect of a story? Or is the, pro, is the journey the destination? I would love to get a film deal. Um... I would love to have all my stuff across multiple formats. I'd love graphic novels. I'd love animation. I'd love long form television series off my works, but the itch that would be scratched by that is nothing more than like reaching more people. Mm. That's it. Um, in terms of what I want out of it, regardless of things I can't control or outside like industry connections or lack thereof that could help expand that readership. Um, or that viewership. I want to die having produced the most enriched, largest, high quality artistic backlist of which I'm capable in this lifetime. I want to leave as much art in the world and not have pushed myself or not left any possible capability unpushed for reaching my full evolution as an artist. When you talk about leaving as much art as possible, what does that mean? Does that mean depth of character? Does that mean number of stories? Does that mean number of protagonists? What does that look like? So basically, it's the best backlist in terms of quality and quantity. You could sacrifice one to serve the other. I want to produce. I want to leave behind the greatest artistic backlist that I'm capable of. Um, I don't have specific metrics in terms of protagonists or whatever. Like I basically start a series thinking like, how can I make this the most incredible like evolution of a character, the most full resolution, making that character realize their potential, their human potential as much as possible across as many different metrics as possible. 
And that's kind of what I'm trying to accomplish too. Like my greatest fear is like not living up to my full potential, not doing something I could have. And it's a balance. I'm hitting the point now where I was like cranking books at a certain level of quality, the best of which I'm capable, which goes to stand for every book I've written, um, the best I'm capable of at that time. So how do I elevate that? It becomes writing across different series, pushing the um, the structural complexities of plot through additional characters, additional perspectives. Um, and the, the next series I'm writing is just so far beyond where I'm at. And I was getting comfortable and I wanted to get uncomfortable. Like I'm not improving if I'm comfortable. So I always like make decisions um, that the decision I've had to make more recently is like to work on myself, to start fucking therapy, like quit drinking, like change the way I do everything and start really working on myself because like I'm the limiting factor now. It's not my publisher. It's not my ads. It's not social media. It's not anything. It's me. Like what can I produce? Um, so I'm lately, I've been like this whole year has been like just working on myself and it's been, it's been difficult and uncomfortable, but I'm trying to like get my shit together so I can produce better art and all the issues that I'm going through now are going to be cannibalized in art. Like I want to present that darkness, that, that route to find regaining your humanity and coming to terms, like forgiving yourself for your involvement in whatever you did, whatever you've done and showcasing the path to healing um, and counterpointing it with people who stayed in the darkness and went even further dark. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. Like I've done everything I can do structurally in terms of number of series, subgenres covered um, perspectives, male, female. Um, the next jump has to be something exponential. I can't keep tinkering in the space I'm in doing things the way I've always done it. I need to like really change myself at a fundamental human level to go beyond at this point. That's the way I look at it. That's incredible. That's incredible. That's not the answer I expected. Um, I think it's, that's such an interesting motive. I guess, let me ask this. Is it a, um, is your writing always going to be therapeutic or at some point does it become purely adventurous and artistic, uh, it, it, not artistic. That's not the right word. Um, purely, um, craft driven and adventurous in a sense of like, Hey, I'm really trying to do something with craft or is therapy. Is there a, a therapeutic rush? That's always going to have to be predominant in your writing i think the therapeutic rush has to be predominant like by design like that's been my path into writing this wasn't like a career decision it wasn't like oh this will be easier more fulfilling it was like i had to do it um all my writing has been birthed from trauma yeah and you know if you look at any given artist like there's generally a central theme or two that they explore over their entire body of work. Um, I think mine and what's come across in all my work is that it keeps coming back to that, like overcoming trauma, like getting right, staying right, dealing with your demons, um, struggling for meaning in the wake of what you've done. So I think that's going to be a central element going forward. I can't see that changing. And then just for me personally, like, you know, we talked about this, like pace of production is not like 
a comfortable like decision, like, oh, this will be more lucrative or more financially viable. Like it won't. I I could write way less and spend all my time marketing and getting my face out there and promoting. That's the smarter business decision. Um, but it's not authentic and organic to my work or me. Like I'm a creator and I want to showcase as much of the nuance of life and the human experience as I can. And given my experience, that comes down to trauma, darkness, moral gray area, um, trying to like regain your humanity, mm-hmm. trying to like reclaim what left you have of a soul and like finding hope and meaning in life. That's what it all comes down to. And I think that's going to continue. I feel like I could ask you questions for another three hours and I just realized we've done three hours. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. Really. Thanks for being so generous with your time. This is, I fucking enjoyed the shit out of this conversation, but I want to give you a chance. Uh, Jason, just tell everybody how they need to follow you, where they need to follow you. Um, how they need to stay up to date on all the stuff that you're pushing out. Uh, my website's jason-casper.com. Got, all the books are there. Um, Facebook and Instagram is Casper Author, Casper with a K. Um, my publisher is actually doing like professional social media for me now. So it's pretty representative of um, work. Like they tell me like, hey, we need these these videos, this content, and I give it all to them. They format it. It's actually like functioning social media for the first time in my career in the past like month. Um, And then I've got a email list you can sign on to on my website where um, you can get like a free short story and try before you buy. But if you want to check out any of the work, um, I think pick a series, but just start at book one. This is one of my big pet peeves is readers are conditioned to formulaic read in any order uh, book installments. That's not what I write. I'm, all my series flow like a long form television series. So don't just pick up book three or five, um, like start at the beginning. And if you can stomach it, you will be in for a, uh, a rewarding reader experience or so I hope. No, you will. You will. Uh, and it's been a blast getting to read your stuff, um, in prep for this. Uh, and I hope we could get to more in-depth questions that I had about the work, but Hey, come back. Come back and let's talk again at some point in the dangerously near future because I enjoyed the shit out of this. Yeah, you know where to find me. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been great talking to you. Very in-depth. I will say you (laughs) you hit me some questions I've never heard before. Like, why did you start journaling? Like, why did I start journaling? No idea. Hey, listen, I, I, you know, it all comes down to the subject matter. Too interesting. There's a lot of of stuff to uh, explore. This is a blast. Let's definitely do this again. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. Great talking to you. That was the savage wonder of Jason Casper. If you guys haven't read any of Jason's books, I would really highly recommend that you do so. Um, I, you hate to throw around things like, oh, he's the next Jack Carr. It, it, there's, that's, Saying that is not wildly inaccurate, I guess, if you want to do that. I, I do think it's a little bit more individual than people just following carbon copies of other people's paths. So that's no reason I would hesitate saying that. But I say that you should read it because I think it's um, 
two, a couple of reasons. One is it's a fun read in and of itself. As I say, if the metric for success in commercial fiction is building, uh, is the architecture of your story and building a compelling piece that makes you want to keep turning the pages, uh, mission accomplished. You know, Jason does that. It's a fun ride. It's a fun roller coaster to get on. The second piece is, especially as a writer, if you are one, I think you'll get an awful lot out of reading Jason. I think it's so inspiring to see, especially now seeing how the sausage is made, see what that looks like on paper and see, you know, um, what a really high degree of discipline in your storytelling, adherence to plot, um, adherence to serving the audience and driving a story forward, what that actually looks like on paper and um, I don't know. For me, I always find I don't ask me why. I always find commercial fiction really um, inspiring because plot structure and all that are my weaknesses, um, and I have a feeling I'm probably not alone in that. So, if you're somebody that likes to really get into the indulgent, masturbatory elements of character and dialogue, <laughs> as I sometimes do, it's really refreshing to find someone that's really disciplined and focused on plot and pushing a narrative forward. Uh, it's kind of freeing you up and giving you um, clarity. Like I really, re- I really respect clarity in writing. Uh, and so, anyway, I found I found Jason a great writer, really fun read uh, to get through his stuff, and uh, well worth your time and effort. So go check his stuff out if you have. If you're not already tracking him, you really should. Um, I'll say a little bit also about our conversation. You know, it's funny. Um, some of you that uh, listen to the show regularly probably know, pro- probably could hear me preparing to step on my soapbox when we started talking about the Iraq war. Um, obviously, I've made my feelings on the Iraq war well known on, on this podcast in the past, um, but I really am trying to be better. You know, it's so weird. Uh, I'll, I'll give you guys a little behind the scenes taste here. It's so funny doing a podcast. There's a degree of um, amenability, comfort. Uh, you know, it's, I, I really enjoy the guests I have on, and it just feels like a social faux pas to disagree with them. You know what I mean? It, you just feel like a dick. It's like it's like, hey, I invited you to this dinner party, and now, no, no, that's not right. No, let me, no, no, that that that's not true. And I, I this sounds so hacked and cliched to say. I really respect Joe Rogan for, um, I think this is one of his biggest strengths is that he can disagree with people in a way that doesn't come across like a dick. He has come across like a dick. I've seen clips where he's been a dick to people, but it seems like that's on purpose. I think generally he has a very affable way of putting things. I, I don't, and I'm even though I don't mean to be a dick, I'm like, oh yeah, this is coming across more antagonistic than I feel like. So I'm trying to do better about asking questions as opposed to making statements. And uh, anyway, that's a, that's a little behind the scenes things I'm working on to get better and better on uh, because I, um, because you know, it's more important that they say what they want to say, but I also like to be able to ask questions to clarify for my own sake. I'm happy to be proven wrong on things I hold near and dear to my, uh, well, not ideological heart, but to my way of thinking, I'm happy to be proven wrong on them, but, but I feel like it starts with kind of like a, I have to acknowledge where I'm coming from if I'm going to get clarification on it. 
if that makes sense. Anyway, um, one of the things I'm trying to get better on. So, um, so I won't, uh, you know, um, go on and on about the Iraq war. Uh, you guys all know how I feel about that. And, but it is always interesting. Um, I want to pick up on one other thing Jason said, which I think is really an interesting point, And it's something we've talked about before. I think I talked about it with Jared Pruitt, um, who, by the way, his book is coming out soon and we pushed it a little bit on Instagram, but, but, you know, keep your head on a swivel for that. Um, Jared, I'm such a big fan of his and really looking forward to that book coming out. But anyway, um, I think when Jared and I were talking, we had, I had talked and actually when we had been talking about the Iraq war and one of those times that I made a concerted effort to go, Hey, well, let's have a conversation about this. It's also, it also might be because of zoom. That also might be why it's difficult to do. It's like, if you're just sitting there in a coffee shop talking, you can kind of have a back and forth a bit more. I feel like on zoom, there needs to be a bit more give and take. And then it becomes more of a, I, I don't know, you know, people can't feel your energy as much and things. I don't know. I just feel like it becomes social faux pas anyway. But I think Jared and I were talking about the Iraq war and I was talking about my support of it. And, uh, and one of the things I think he and I talked about was, Hey, it's either that I, I think I said, you know, Hey, I think it's important to set the record straight on Iraq because I feel like without any data to back me up, but just a gut feeling. I was like, I feel like people, you know, might be taking the quote unquote moral injury of Iraq very hard. And that might be adding to PTS issues and, you know, uh, depression and what have you that stemming from the Iraq war, because if you don't feel like it was a, a, a worthy effort or a noble effort, um, you know, you could be beating yourself up. So when Jason brought that up today, that, that, his um, therapist had said, yeah, that's actually a key part of PTS. I thought that was really interesting, which I guess <laughs> warrants even more of why I like to try to set the record straight on a rock as I see it. Um, but I haven't heard anything yet that, that changes my mind on a rock. Anyway, that's all grist for a, a different mill on a different day. Um, but really thank you to Jason Casper for coming on and chatting, uh, man, that was fun. Um, yeah. And I, I gotta say, uh, I am going to have news and updates about the Savage Wonder Festival that we are doing again. It won't be this year. Yes, we did it last year. We'll do it again in 2024 date and location to be announced. I know what it is. I just can't say it. So, um, but it's going to be so fucking badass. I can't even tell you. Um, but it is occurring to me that, uh, well, I don't know. Can I, can I open up a little bit? <laughs> Do that. Um, I talked about this, uh, I think on profiles and havoc a little, um, on this latest episode, but you know, when you're in a car for 25 hours, you, you really could do a lot of deep thinking. And one of the things I was thinking about, it just not on purpose, or just one of those thoughts that <clears throat> enter the transom of your mind, uh, was, uh, you know, starting vet rep. And I was thinking about it because as I was driving 25 hours through all these little villages and towns and, you know, the different landscape of America that you see as you go across 25 hours of the country, um, it reminded me so much of my time in the military, my time traveling the country for many reasons, mostly in the military, but also for other stuff, even places that I'd been in the military as I was passing by them. And, um, it reminded me of how much I craved 
some degree of human contact. And I can't remember, I was talking about this with somebody, I can't remember if it was on the show or off the show. And I, whoever it is, I really apologize and please come up on the net. I don't know if it was Reagan Pettigrew. I don't know if it was Justin Egan. I can't remember who it was, but one of y'all motherfuckers, somebody out there was re- who is really intuitive and soulful, brought up a point of how much veterans need intimacy. And often that gets cheapened down into sex or a strip club or what have you. But that the itinerant life of a veteran requires some degree of human connection and intimacy. And it really doesn't mean sex. And whoever that was I was talking to made that point. Again, I can't remember if this was on the show or off air, but they were like, yeah, it's not about sex. Like it can get misconstrued as sex. And sometimes, you know, veterans can get drunk, buzzed, and just settle for sex. But it's it's not about that. It's about intimacy. And I was thinking about that as I was driving through all these towns. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, as you go th- through, you know, town after town and you see Walmart and Applebee's and, you know, you know, a Buffalo Wild Wings or whatever. And, you know, it's great. I mean, I've enjoyed some great nights at Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, and that's I like the wings and, you know, I like watching sports and, and that's cool. But I was like, there is, I was like, what really is cool about those places to the extent that an Applebee's bar or, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings or whatever can be cool is that you're with other people. And as an itinerant, as a traveler, as a wanderer, to be able to stop in some place and have some degree of human contact is nice. And I was like, but for me, it always felt shallow because, eh. It's Buffalo Wild Wings. Okay, the wings are good. Yeah, if there's a good sports event on, fine. Um, I can see locals. I can see, you know, get some local color and flavor and what teams they like and whatever. Cool. But to me, I realized this. I never I never really put this together. I was like, this is what I've been craving, and this is really what is the heart at, at the heart of Vet Rep. Is I was like, it's live entertainment. It's being around, having these unique, one-of-a-kind, this-night-only experiences with people shared experience in a room of strangers that you go through an emotional journey together and you come out going, I'm a little bit more whole. I'm a little bit more fulfilled. I've kind of, I've properly been in a place and there's something about that intimate live experience that is really cool. And it leaves an indelible mark and memory on a person if it's done right. And I think theater has that ability, and I think all the live performance stuff we do at VetRep has that ability, um, because we do try to create experiences. Our Savage Wonderground events, unique space, unique multimedia presentation, so it's not just an open mic. You know, we try to create unique environments, unique ecosystems, so that when you're there, you're properly there. You feel like you've you stopped your journey for long enough to really refuel your soul tank. Does that sound really fucking corny? Yeah, it does. But anyway, um, but that quest for intimacy is, I think at the core of vet rep providing, and, and it's not intimacy just because it's, I mean, we talk a lot about intimacy of vet rep because a lot of our spaces are really small. So by nature, it feels really intimate. Um, but it's not necessarily about the size of the venue. It's really about the connection established between performer and audience. Um, and yes, some of that is done with because of the space. When the theater at, uh, for Vet Rep is properly built out, 
um, the way the stage will be will be one that enhances the intimacy between the performer and the audience. But um, but that's really what it is. And I realized that, and I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, that's why this turns me on so much. That's why this is so, you know, I was like, I, I never put that together. But, man, traveling now and driving through all these places just reminds me. I was always on a quest for just a little bit of soul, a little bit of human contact, a little bit of, of intimate, indelible connection for that night. Um, and there's nothing better, you know, than live performance to do that. You know, it really scratches an itch. At least it did for me. And I have a feeling it will for more people, especially veterans, because we do like community. And that is community. Um, and I think behind every, hey, let's get together for the UFC fight. Hey, let's, you know, go have a drink at the Applebee's bar. I think behind every one of that is, let's find something to bond us really quickly and make this moment uh, real and fully fulfilled for us. This might sound all very, I don't know, uh, frou-frou-y. Um, and then I'll shut up. But if that doesn't sound completely out there, I uh, hope that was articulate enough to be somewhat interesting. Anyway, that was some epiphanies I had um, during my 25-hour drive. And that's also a long way of saying that you should become part of the VetRep ecosystem. And what I would recommend doing is to go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. Scroll partway down the homepage, you will see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog. We're almost up to a thousand subscribers. So if you haven't already subscribed, please do be one of the cool kids. I don't know that you're an early adopter at this point, but jump on the bandwagon. And uh, when you subscribe for free uh, to our literary blog, you will be automatically, therefore, on our mailing list. And that means that every day in your email inbox, you will receive a snippet of veteran writing, usually poetry, fiction, or creative nonfiction. Um, and then beneath that, <coughs> sorry, beneath that, uh, that snippet will be a bunch of shameless plugs about all the stuff we're doing, all the lines of effort we have going on, whatever's current and happening that we want you to know about will be on the, that email underneath the original veteran writing that we are featuring that day. Okay. Um, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, pushing this episode out um i'm christopher paul meyer on behalf of the entire team at vet rep thanks my thanks to jason casper and we will see you guys next time for another savage wonder when we talk to another veteran in the arts <laughs>